my interest in local history really was um, already evolving by the time I was a teenager, and it was sort of um, almost accidental. It wasn't it wasn't through books or it wasn't like trips to the library or you know it, it was uh, being a goth adjacent teen wandering around in cemeteries, you know, and and eventually you know just the just being there and posturing also kind of gave way to like questions and just looking at headstones because cemeteries are still you know uh, my libraries and in, in my day to day work uh, to this day because there's so much there. Um, and there and there are so many questions just provoked by um, I wanted to know, you know, who was in the places where there was obvious graves, but, you know, no marker who, why were the women's lives so short? Why were there so many small children? You know, these these kind of like questions were really peaked at a young age. Um, and that evolved, you know, as you as you know, into uh, my, my project, These Mysterious Hills. I had a column for The Advocate Weekly and then in Iberkshire's for a number of years that was um, kind of still local history was still a little gothy you know haunted houses and and uh the like um uh and then more and more uh the houses themselves and more more importantly the people um in the houses uh, which was always kind of i think you know my angle even when i was writing about the occult and and ufos and houses it was human stories of people who lived in the berkshires and died in the berkshires and are buried here and that continuity you know to our to our own lives here but you know what's amazing is kind of digging up that uh paranormal aspect of things because i think you know historically i don't know if it's if how we it's how we look at history and maybe it's our own way of sort of rationalizing things with ourselves we may look at history kind of like little house on the prairie yeah. like there there's kind of this block that oh you know things were then and then now we're in today's age and wow things are really crazy today and and the closer you get to something it becomes more complex but the fact of the matter is people live very complex lives there were incredible characters, murderous people, uh, crooked people, and a lot of really weird stuff <laughs> that yeah. happened. And, and you, and that really um, was something that clearly uh, you were inspired by in, in some way. Um, but it's interesting picking up that sort of paranormal side, because I almost feel like that would be harder to research, but, but it, but it's there though. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, it's it's a you know for somebody like um, you know with an anthropological background, it, you know it's part of people's lives whether whether I believe you know their house is haunted or not whether I whatever you know that narrative is part of people's lives and it's been part of uh, lives in the Berkshires uh, going all the way back you know to um, you know when the Shakers really made the Berkshires kind of the occult center of America you know this was the the birthplace of all this idea of having seances and communicating with the dead that's interesting not a getting of, a lot of people as a witch for it you know yeah. wouldn't look at the shakers and say occult yeah but but yeah. you know but it's been really downplayed you know a lot of the weird history of our um that's i think sort of where i fell into this niche was there's so much local history there's so many books on the berkshires um and there's so much excluded from it um you know whether it's weird paranormal stuff and the occult beliefs or um, the narratives of women's history and uh, people of color and and the Mohican who occupied this land, that's been expunged. That's been ex you know systematically excluded generation after generation. Is that something that is unique to the Berkshires in oh, here? No, no, it's not. not so okay, so because yeah. I mean, I think there are a lot of people who are sort of waking up to how history 
and of course, I mean, who who writes history, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, all the people who uh, are in control, uh, of course. But it, it really is interesting. I think if you dig in, because a lot of it's there, how much history has been perverted? I guess yeah. is, is one way to describe yeah. it. Yeah, it's it's been very cherry picked, and it's and it's something that. Yeah, I think you're right. We have this awareness now um, of things in this this American national history context, and we're we're looking at you know the Jim Crow history and um, you know the Howard Zinn project and things like this. People are really into that, but um, but we don't always think of it as being a local thing. We don't think of the KKK being here in Pittsfield, Mass, and they were in in big numbers. You know, things like that. We don't. Um, we kind of each community has kind of you know. Uh, glamorize their own local history and, and kind of distilled it down partly for tourism, um, you know, to just keep the narrative straight. It's Melville wrote Moby Dick here. That's what you need to know kind of thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> the history kind of goes with the venues and, and the history of the, with the houses that are gone. All the is, Chamber of uh, Commerce friendly yeah, stuff. Hey, I'm in the business of doing commercial history. I'm, I'm profiling people's houses for money and I'm doing um, I'm, I'm doing local history as a commercial enterprise. So there is some natural selectivity there. Um, but, but every day I'm kind of trying to, um, you know, with my page and thing, trying to put out additional things, um, just kind of free information about, um, because there is this question of like, I'm doing local history. Um, you know, I don't want to speak for women's history or, or people of color. I don't want to like usurp that voice, but you know, there is this obligation of like, um, you know, my own privilege, examining my own privilege as I'm looking into, you know, uh, how that bias has affected hundreds of years of local history for us. And, and I grew up here, you know, I was, I was born into that. Yeah. And, I, and I, don't, I don't think it does ourselves any favors to continue with the sort of accepted history that's all nice and yeah. and whatever however you want to describe it which you know may be more comfortable uh to a greater number of people because honestly history should be interesting <laughs> it yeah. should be messy yeah uh people are are messy human yeah. beings you know we don't we don't live perfect lives and nor would we really want to because what's the point of this whole yeah. <laughs> thing called life um if everything is so simple and um and straightforward uh but it, it yeah so i guess <laughs> we all want to know it but there's very there's not a lot of like wanting to own it you know they it's like you don't want it sometimes you don't want the worst attached to your house or your especially your commercial historic venue or, or things like that so it maybe there's like a know, statute of limitations okay we can <laughs> yeah. we can start the real stuff uh like 75 years ago or yeah. so right <laughs> yeah people are really comfortable talking about like the may fosberg murder from 1900 you know and that and you know, this glamorous rich girl killed on tyler street that that comes up in the groups all the time but lewis len a little more closer you know recent of course, yeah dead silence kind of thing you know yeah how, so. do, how do you how do you deal with that but again real um i mean you know and i went to a school with the victim of of lewis or one of the victims of uh lewis lent and uh and it is hard uh but it's still it's still there it's yeah. still it's still real uh for sure um looking at that so i you know you've you've seen so much and, and you've researched so much was there one story that really took you down the road where wow this is this is something that i love doing um was there one that like shocked you to to realize that 
wow, this is not necessarily the history that I thought was uh, was happening here. Um, anything in particular that struck you early on? Um, I guess, I mean, the one, there, there's just been so many. It's hard to think of one because I think it's it's just been this continuous process of shock and for me. And, I, <laughs> and I'm always like apologizing to the fans on my page. I'm like, I feel like I get a lot of wows on my posts. The wow reacts more than any other, like you more than hearts. And I love the description, uh, just a series of, of shock, (laughs) (laughs) but it's like, this is what I'm feeling as I'm studying. I, I have been shocked, um, at how, you know, how incorrectly I learned history and, and just how much more there was, but the, the story that I think I revisit, um, and research a kind of re-research every few years is um is how the salvation army first came to pittsfield and um general the story of general lutz who was uh the proprietor of uh brothels and opium dens up and down the east coast and and uh, set up shop right on fence street and, and he had a great kind of um one two thing he would do he would have his illicit businesses and it would go public and there'd be a huge scandal and it would make the papers. People would hear about it all over, but he'd just go to the next town and kind of introduce himself as a reformed sinner. And he was a great like tent revival kind of speaker. And he's like, if a terrible tawdry sinner like me can find redemption, what can the Lord Jesus do for you? And it works because he'd go, you, you probably heard about my terrible misdeeds in Philadelphia, uh, you know, as he'd go to Pittsburgh and he's like, but now I've seen, you know, I've seen a change. I can, I can show you how to do it. I believe, you know, and he just do this in town after town. He did this in Pittsfield quite successfully for a couple of years until uh, the, the local uh, law came down. Well, first the papers uh, did a big expose on his his opulent opium den that he was running on Fence Street. And now, what year was this around? This is 1889. Mm-hmm. You know, so this is like as the the 1800s opiate epidemic that hit Pittsfield like everywhere. You know, um, was kind of uh reaching a peak you know so it started like people started kind of abusing opiates post-civil war you know as tends to be the pattern and um after wars there's a lot of pain management issues that turns into you know more and so you know this this had been and, and opium was um legally available laudanum you could buy a 10 gallon thing of laudanum at any pharmacist on North Street, you know, people were dropping dead of overdoses and uh, Burbank, yeah, the Burbank block and all the poor housing. And um, and sometimes, you know, in very wealthy neighborhoods, elderly women were overdosing on, on laudanum. And it was like um, they didn't and they didn't ban it until 1915. What is your uh, go to um, media? In other words, like when you are looking at a particular issue or a particular person or or history you know where do you usually begin uh the process uh, let's i guess maybe just use an example so um a, a famous person uh maybe that had a misdeed i wish I, <laughs> I really like those you know some murderer or something i don't know but like where do you begin i mean i assume newspapers just to, to some extent are a, big, um, a piece of it or if no. i'm looking at a person if i want to really get comprehensive on a person um i start kind of with the vital vital records and the census and stuff i build okay. the 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 generic skeleton of their life you know where they were decade to decade where they lived so look at city directories 
And then I go to the papers to kind of put the flesh on the bones um, because it's easier once I know, if I know what streets they were living on in different decades and um, know what towns and, and where they moved around, where they were born, it, it becomes much easier to look through this huge amount of, because there's a lot of old newspapers available. There's there's some through paid databases and then there's um, a ton of extinct newspapers uh, in the Berkshire Athenaeum that you can look things up and things like the Pittsfield Evening Journal and the Pittsfield Sun and uh, the Courier. So th it's like a needle in a haystack if you kind of go in without, um, you know, without like a, a span, you could be spinning through microfiche for for days um, and and not find anything. So, yeah. And you can't and you can't like Google through it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so I want to know where they were, when their daughter was married, yeah. what the dates of everything were. And then I can look in and find, you know, and there's a lot of there's a lot of flesh on those bones because papers in the old days were like social media. Now there was so much, you know, it was almost down to what people ate. You know, it was like every little features on, you know, when people go away on vacation, you know, <laughs> there was announcements in the paper. It was like, you know, they're, they've taken a steamship to Bermuda for a week uh you know hey <laughs> friend i'll be back every six you weeks you know oh, yeah. you remember back you know when you when you were in radio back in the day it was like you know when you took a week off the whole thing was like oh well don't say that you went away on vacation because someone oh, yeah. break into your house or something like that <laughs> in the meantime back in that generation they're putting oh, yeah. it in the newspaper well, and the wealthy <laughs> wanted people to know what you know how yeah. far they could travel and how long they could be gone for and that they were going to cuba or something like that you know it was um you know, it was a status. So you wanted to advertise the same as births and, and things like that. But yeah, it was um, people visiting. It would publish if you were visiting your sister in Rochester for a weekend, you know, it was a little, and I often wonder like how they, how they kept that beat. Did people like show up and just put little things in a uh, suggestions in a pie? It's not entirely clear to me how they got all that information with just a few newspaper men running around, um, you know, possibly yeah. making some of it up or just, you know, getting, hearing it some of third, third or fourth hand, maybe, but. And, and today there is this sort of perception of oh, how journalism used to be, oh, journalism is dead and that sort of thing. But the idea that journalism was some sort of, I don't know, totally respected. <laughs> I, mean, I guess that's the way I would describe it. Like totally yeah. responsible at one point in our history is kind of um, it, it is kind of misleading yeah. in that way. Because I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of, uh, especially when you have that much paper to fill, that much ink yeah. to use. There's got to be a lot of stuff in there that would yeah. be more. Uh, consistent probably than to what we may see on social media today, okay. like you like you said. Yeah, the further back you go, the less, if anything, the less reliable, the less responsible, and the more salacious it gets, um, and the more like almost fictional. In the 1800s, there was no law or real ethical like pressure to make sure all your newspaper stories were true at all. You know, I mean, and things, and there was crazy stuff in old newspapers and, you know, some little podunk paper in Arizona would write that they found like giant skeletons. They just slow news day and they just make up a lost city in the Grand Canyon. No, you know, fake, fake sources, you know, Dale Clemhopper said, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it, the New York Times would just run it. They'd get it up over the telegraph wire and they'd just run it. No questions asked. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, if anything, if there was a responsible journalism, it was it was more recent. And maybe there have been some peeling back um, over the last 40, 50 years. But, um, but that, that responsible kind of truthful journalism idea 
is, is largely 20th century born. You know, it, it didn't really exist in the 1800s. They weren't worried about truthfulness or accuracy <laughs> ter terribly much at all. We didn't have any giants out here uh, in the Berkshires at all. <laughs> <laughs> we had wild men in the woods. That was what, what the papers here ran with. Is that what it was? I mean, you know, you wonder like how much, you know, like what, what, it, where does that, seed come from you know like okay well there's wild men in the wood i don't know what the story is tell me about the tell me about the story I mean, about the <laughs> going back to i mean this is there's probably uh i think there's a newspaper hoax going back to the 1760s before we were even a country great barrington there's a story about uh an ape like man um and this is you know this is 200 years before anybody's saying the word bigfoot you know before that's like become a trend um but but the these shaggy ape this ape man story that um, was captured in great barrington and and this is this is colonial times um and then in the 1800s um there would be rumors that they you know there were hoaxes um especially up in north county where there was a little bit maybe more forest around the vermont border um, there was a bunch of these stories that people come out of the woods and say they saw or, or they catch it and they get a whole bunch of people they you know line up at a barn and get disappointed when there's nothing there. <laughs> there's nothing there. Uh, well, <laughs> well, when you when you expect the Bigfoot to come around, yeah. well, it's not going to come around. And know? weird stuff did come. <laughs> you know, people would line up to see like a two-headed cat born or something, or or uh, you know a six-legged calf that was born. Um, so the, you'd you'd hear about an attraction and people would stop work and stuff and go for an hour. Um, to to check out these weird oddities and things. So, you know, an ape man, a wild man was, and then there were kind of, you know, also some people uh, living in the woods, you know, there were, there were people and kind of on the fringes of society that, you know, um, so there was like this blur where wild man is kind of like a, an amorphous term that could mean, could mean indigenous people, could mean people struggling with mental illness, living enough in the woods. It could mean like a Bigfoot Sasquatch type legend, you know, shaggy dog story. So, um, so it was, you know, as a historian, it's kind of, it makes it like, you know, um, you got, you got to look real close at which, you know, which kind of wild now, what's the context, you know, what's the era and who's writing it. Um, Cause papers had different perspectives too, you know, the Eagle versus the Pittsfield Sun were different parties, different, you know, worldviews um, than is now. Yeah. So, and uh, I worked at the North Adams Transcript. That was my first job out of college. I don't know how much of that paper has been saved. I, I hope you know uh, Ooh, if uh, you're yeah. able to go into. It's, it's interesting because we're used to seeing things digitally and maybe at one point you're able to go back and you know go into the member section and 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 get all those old papers but generally microfiche is still the microfilm i don't know what's the difference between microfiche and microfilm um but but that's usually the, the yeah. way right um well it can be some of the some of the stuff um it's hit or miss some some sections that we're we're kind of lucky a lot of the eagle and a lot of the transcript and some of the pittsfield sun even going back to the early 1800s um, can now be searched if you get a subscription to like newspapers.com. Um, there's, there's two, there's newspaperarchive.com and newspapers.com and they have different papers and different eras and stuff. So there's some has some, but, um, so it's getting better. It's getting better and more, um, not for, you, you still can't kind of, it's not like the movies where you Google, like what happened to my house 20 years ago. And there's like a picture and it looks just like the newspaper, you know, and it's, it's still not like that. Um, but. 
um, but it's getting it's getting better. But there's still a ton that's not digitally available, um, which of course you know makes your job maybe a little bit more fun, <laughs> and then yeah. <laughs> and then and then maintains uh, that sort of uh, specialty expertise because now you gotta you gotta still know where to go you know whether yeah. it is the local house of history or you know these different uh, houses of of history in a way yeah it, it is um it is sort of something that just kind of became a specialty because i was doing you know writing pieces writing articles for different papers and magazines and trying to find out so i had to kind of learn how to find out you know how you search deeds and how you search census records and the all the different maps from um berkshire history because there's all these different eras of maps and some are more accurate than others and um and it, it almost takes all when i profile a house now um you know i'm doing a little bit of all these things i'm looking in city directories some of the old phone and street directories that go back um, and you can find hard copies at the library back to the 1800s um, with just listings of who lived on streets it's, it's very valuable um but you know, you, you've got to almost bring it all because there's holes in the deeds. And, and when it gets in the 1800s, they sometimes like don't bother to mention who they bought the property for. And you're just like, you've been tracing it back and you're just dead end. If you go gotta, far enough back, they actually you know, have what the, the name of the owner on the map uh, because there hmm. are few oh, yeah. houses out there. But yeah. like, you know, you'd be on like, I don't know, just say Holmes Road or something. And literally, you'd actually have the name yeah. uh, of the property. Oh, and there. those are critical. Those uh, those have saved me and and brought house histories to life because there's houses that have been wrongly recorded too that are even, you know, they have a form B in the Massasoit registry, but it's got the wrong date. It was Bill got confused with another house because people were trying to do this research in the 70s and 80s when it was not as easy to, you know, and, and you got as far as you could get with what was hard copy and you couldn't keyword search anything anywhere. And so there, there's a lot of wrong information still in the local that's got to be corrected. But the maps are are hugely helpful when you can actually look at the footprint and say, like, this is the corner of, you know, First Street and uh, and uh, Orchard in, you know, 1876. And this is who lived there, the name and the basic shape of the house. Uh, it's very helpful. I do hope that you are enjoying the podcast. I just want to take a quick moment to let you know that this is a production of 180 Media. That's my full service communications and marketing agency. We do a full range of content development, graphic design, web development for WordPress or Wix or other web platforms, copywriting, video work. We'll do the big high-end corporate video work with full production, or we'll also do more simple and quick, consistent video content to help you stay in front of your audience on social media and elsewhere. We'll help you develop your short and long-term marketing plans, and I can actually even coach you to nail that next presentation. Check out 180media.com and see also some of my past work and the agency's past work on my blog, johncroll.info. And now back to the podcast. What I really like is uh, the historical perspective on you know people who are listening in uh, Pittsfield, Massachusetts, there's been a very uh, concerted effort to work on two neighborhoods. Uh, one is the West Side neighborhood, and the other one is the Morningside neighborhood. And traditionally, they've been both uh, looked at and, and are socioeconomically challenged and and um, 
ultimately, you know, have been focus points for the city. You've talked about the Morningside neighborhood quite a bit in a way that I never knew before, which is the neighborhood in itself really didn't exist in the way that it is today, uh, years ago. And what was Morningside back then, I think, is was yeah. a totally different location, yeah, um, which is which is really fascinating to me. Yeah, that's that's a wild thing about how um, you know. I mean, both on the morning side and the west side, um, there've been uh, a lot of changes in where how neighborhoods are conceived and drawn um, and where they line up, and and some of it's had to do with the the different waves on the west side, especially. Um, there there've been a lot of different incarnations of you know you have an Irish neighborhood. Um, you know, down around Madison Ave and, and Seymour Street and that area in the in the 1800s that then becomes a Polish neighborhood and has it kind of, but then it's kind of boundaries changed a little too because um, so so boundaries of things, but Morningside was conceived as a private estate. Morningside was, um, the original Morningside was a house uh, that's that can still be found on Perrine Ave. Um, it's been subdivided into apartments, but uh, it was a Supreme Court justice's house uh, who left the court um, after the Dred Scott decision, um, Justice Curtis, and he built a mansion um, probably about the same time as Springside House, possibly the same builder. Um, and uh, uh, that was that was sold to uh, Kellogg, who was a big deal at the time. And he uh, he already owned kind of what would be south of or um, north. Uh, yeah, south of um Tyler Street. Tyler Street wasn't really much of a thing. Um, so, so Tyler often, Street's the main thoroughfare you know, now for yeah. that neighborhood, but um, but probably what's to yeah, there was not a house there, you know, yeah. really until uh, around 19, or, uh, 1900s, or late 1800s, um, a few, you know, things. But this most of North Pittsville is kind of this open, um, big, big farmland for, you know, the first, first couple of centuries of Pittsfield. And then, um, so you had Curtis Woods and and um which was kind of like their Springside Park. Springside was all open farmland and then Curtis Woods was kind of um you know where the residential housing off of Springside is now, you know, Brown Street and Draper and all those. That was the woods back then. And and um so so Kellogg turned this all into all to combined all of his property um with what he bought from Curtis and made it Morningside and came up with the name in 1872, I think. Um, and then Abraham Burbank came up with uh, Evening Side, which is hardly you never hear about anymore. But that he made he named the neighborhood on the other side of um, Upper North Street uh, Evening Side because you know West and, and East. And East but, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, so I mean, what was originally Morningside is kind of this area above Tyler Street, um, really above Springside Ave. You know, Brown Street through Norman Perrine, I see. Yeah. Um, and the original house Morningside is in Perrine, but that later was just kind of caught out in the most recent you know as it's been redrafted by 2004 <laughs> that's what was morning the original morning side isn't in the morning side neighborhood anymore um and partly partly the neighborhood changed over decades it, it moved um further down tyler street and out towards um down towards the jail and things like that as g's housing, you know, uh, the housing around GE expanded. Yeah. And, to, um, and, and just so yeah, people understand, I mean, GE was really, it ran adjacent to yeah. that whole uh, corridor. And then 
presumably, I don't know if it's exactly the case, but it seems like housing kind of sprouted up around it uh, to be conducive. And a lot of people actually, I think, want to work uh, for for a year. I mean, a long time ago, they used to talk about that damn GE traffic. (laughs) If you were old enough to remember that, but uh, probably, you know, know, that, that was still in our childhood. It was still a very, uh, very busy time, yeah. um, you know, in those times when uh, everyone got out of GE. But um, but with that said, yeah, there was a lot of people who probably brought their lunch pail and walked right over uh, to yeah. the GE. Yeah. And it was, and originally, you know, when it was William Stanley and, and early GE, it was the Morningside plant. So if you worked at the Morningside plant and you were walking down to say, you know, as far as Tyler, Cortland, um, stuff like that, um, People, you know, started so so the the identity of Morningside expanded out to that area, um, and then farther, and and now it's kind of redrawn. Almost uh, goes all the way to City Hall and the mm-hmm. whole what was uh, Pittsfield's Little Italy, uh, Lake, you know, Lakeside uh, or not Lakeside, but there, there was Lakewood. Lakewood, yeah. yeah. Um, well, there was yeah, there was Lakeside and Lakewood. Oh, really? Um, there are two <laughs> at, at one point, yeah, because there, there was them, um, uh, and that. You know, um, but but all these kind of neighborhoods, um, the neighborhood boundaries have changed, and the the um, many cases the the street, you know, the streets have been you know slightly altered, and the houses have been you know. So there there's huge amounts of change, I think, in in most neighborhoods, and you see only a few neighborhoods where there's really um, they're much like they probably were in the 1800s. You know, maybe Wendell and uh, well, even Wendell, some you know the the parts of Wendell and Pomeroy things that are closest to East street, you see, um, pres- you know, preserve second street is, um, fairly preserved as it was structurally, you know, the houses there, a lot of those date back 1870s and earlier. So, yeah, those are, that's um, a good point. I, you know, you look at, you know, uh, some parts of Pomeroy, uh, Bartlett, Ave, Wendell, those yeah. are, and, and then if you go the block beyond, um, uh, further away from downtown, it's yeah. still pretty well preserved, and maybe even I have a to give bit. a shout out to because I got a ton of clients from uh, you know Pomeroy, Wendell, Bartlett. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they they love their houses and they're gorgeous. You know? I I really do, and I, I and I think people and part of sort of the um, reinvestment uh, of people recognizing the value of these homes did happen. I think in the last uh, decade, fifteen years or so, where people really did um, reinvest in those uh, yeah. homes uh, over there. So, uh, the, you know, basically going over to Colt at the end of it, you know, yeah. um, there that's that's a that's a nice area for sure, and a lot of people appreciate uh, the the history there. So, tell me about uh, Obi Joyful. Um, you you yeah. you've written about him uh, a little bit, right? Yeah, Obi Joyful was a he was a neat guy. He was, um, he was a, a lot of walking contradictions because he, he, um, he'd been vegetarian. Most of the, he was one of the first, you know, publicized vegetarians. Um, but he, towards the end of his life, he was eating nothing but raw meat. Um, <laughs> so he so, moved over to the Atkins diet. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he, he transitioned. <laughs> yeah. He just, he kind of, he, uh, he marched to his own drummer and he was, he was very well known in Pittsfield. He would, uh, he had business cards that he would give advice for a dollar, um, you know, in the, in, <laughs> and, uh, when did he live? When did he live? Um, I think he didn't die until 60, 61. Okay. Um, so he's, you know, he was born in the, the late 1800s, um, came to Pittsfield as an adult. Um, he wasn't, he was not native to here, but he, um, he came from out West and he, uh, he had been 
like possibly double married. Um, so there was some like tensions with it, you know, um, cause he was, he was in the papers like here and in other places he was like known. Um, he was, he was definitely a character, but he, um, he would drive around the Berkshires in his model T and, um, he, he wanted one thing that people always notice. He was always out in the cold, like coatless, things like that. He, wow. he seemed impervious to elements. He was like kind of this larger than life, um, character. Uh, and he lived, he lived in this kind of elevated, it was like a tiny house, but it was like on stilts up in Lanesboro. It was like, you, you know, the, the main levels just, yeah, it was just like this elevated little shack off the ground. Um, and, uh, so he, he, um, but he was wildly popular. He was listened to, he was considered like on the fringe, but like a little bit, you know, touched by God, maybe you know, a little bit, just like, um, uh, he, he booked out the, um, the old palace theater, uh, they had 1500 people uh plus another 500 they it was one of the first times they piped uh sound from the palace theater over to union square now barrington um for another wow. 500 people over there to listen are you serious yeah he gave this huge speech oh about uh why men are the fairer sex two thousands <laughs> <laughs> like an ovation i thought it would be something of like great <laughs> Like just wisdom of, no. of you know living a joyful life or something well, like that. Part of his recipe, thing. apparently. Yeah, he. he <laughs> well, men are the yeah, he oh, uh, he said you know the 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 world was wrong, um, and they were paying. You know, he gave a lot of examples from the animal kingdom, and he's <laughs> like, you know, look <laughs> upon the you know uh, he you know he. he talk about different exotic birds and lines and, and then looky upon the speaker before you, you know, if you need more evidence, cause he was, he was extremely vain. He would, he would love to pose for the, the museum camera club and, um, and art schools around here and stuff. So there's, there's a lot of out there. There's a lot of photos and drawings and stuff like in people's attics and things like that. Yeah. Man, cause I played in a, a basketball league that was called the OB joyful basketball league and it was like oh, wow. at the boys yeah. club over the fall it was you know just like a fall or uh yeah it was a it was a sort of pre-season uh league and and i i think maybe 90 percent or 95 percent of the kids who played have this thing that says ob joyful on their shirt and they probably have no idea who the heck that is or if, that it's actually a person yeah. i always thought it was like oh <laughs> be joyful. Like a just, just yeah be joyful like William. William. <laughs> 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 which is did you ever find out where the name came from i mean that was that was something he had the card he was he was handing out the card saying this yeah is he my just kind of so it wasn't like a nickname that yeah he just kind of gave it to himself in the 20s i think he you know got his name uh you know late legally changed and you know which is nobody did back then i mean really unless you were hiding from the law or something but um <laughs> but he, well he did have that double married thing so you know that might have had to do with it but he yeah yeah but he uh he was a fascinating character. i think there was a restaurant on north street it was before a little before i was born um but i guess there was a restaurant called Louis joyful okay. for a little while riding off his coattails yeah, The Allen Farm um, was another one I, I saw that you had uh, written about at one point. And if you look at what street is it? Is it Allen Street or is it? No, it's not. It's um, Allen Gate. Allen Gate. Yeah. Allen Gate. That's right. So, and that's literally what the street probably is named uh, after. Oh, yeah. Is that is that big gate? Everything out there is named after is Allen. This Allen that. Yeah. So there's a family Allen. Um, yeah. And is that is that the the Fighting Parson um, family? Yeah. Okay. So yeah. uh, you you had an interesting take on this because again, you know, history 
those who are in control sort of write history and mm-hmm. you know and the fighting parson and alan is great and everything's named after alan alan dale alan gate alan this alan that um but uh interesting how that all came about uh how that farmland went to that family yeah well i mean the biggest thing um i think it, as near as i can tell the biggest thing historically that the alan family for all the things that are named after them that they did was own stuff they own stuff that that's really what their contribution primarily i mean parson allen may or may not have fired the first shot the battle of bennington you know i think I, stuff like that is in the category of legend because you know, nobody knows who fired the first shot at the battle you know but that's all always a repeated factoid and and things like that but i mean at the end of the day that's mostly what they you know and starting early you know i mean uh Alan was given, you know, uh, a lot of land. Um, he, you know, he was just the minister, but he owned most of the land around the church, most of, you know, what's now Park Square and stuff. He gave a little bit back to the town to start the the cemetery that was about where Park Square was now and most of you know most of downtown when um so i mean he owned kind of where everything the police station city hall all that stuff is now that was just like his land and then um over the next couple of generations like you know it, it uh grew and you know I and mean, they just kind of grew into more of a, a wealthy lifestyle and um you know finally to the the allen farm being and and it was both sides of dalton avenue i mean it's really from like dalton avenue um agramont uh allendale school area all the way to oak hill you know they owned up up to there at one point so um it's like a huge amount of pittsfield now i mean you're talking like a you know millions and millions and millions of dollars worth of real estate in today's uh, economy And, and you know they just owned it all um and a lot of you know i find a lot of these you know when i go to the older houses back to the 1700s stuff there was a lot of disproportionate uh, i mean you know people after the revolution uh, i mean like my you know the derwins fought locally and some of the regiments in the revolution we didn't get anything you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, some some of a lot of there was a lot of revolutionary soldiers who didn't even get their wages you know their actual wages for time served and then there were other people that you see you know in these deeds that they're getting like huge tracts of land you know they're getting like 1600 acres because they bought like you know they served for like three weeks you know at the battle of bennington you know which was uh, you know they they were enlisted for three weeks of the whole revolution and, and they knew you know but they were well connected and they made a you know uh the the revolution seemed to be really good for making political connections you know if you didn't wow. get killed you didn't get killed by cannon or something or die uh you know die of pneumonia you you could get really well set if you met the right people in the the right battles you know it's interesting because there's this kind of like um you know interesting dichotomy there i don't even know if it's a dichotomy but you have the sort of fighting parson situation but then you know uh generations later than you the samuel harrison um and i don't know if you have done a lot of research on samuel harrison but i just find it interesting that of course and and who knows how much the fighting parson there is a legend and, and otherwise, but I think maybe uh, Samuel Harrison and, and his history, I would say, is probably a much more firm, uh, firmly uh, settled as as to what his uh, contribution oh, was yeah. uh, during that time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think Samuel Harrison's probably much more. Um, much more care is probably more of the research has been recent, whereas a lot of, um, you know, because of who Alan was, people are talked about him early, wrote about him early. A lot of the stuff that was written earlier was, you know, um, 
not accurate, but it's, there was so much of it that it's, it goes uncorrected. You know, a lot of that stuff that's like really core stuff goes uncorrected because it's, it's in so many books already that, um, but the, so the stuff that, you know, the people like, you know, Samuel Harrison, whose house we almost demolished without realizing it, yeah. you know, there's that was greater care that later. Ago, yeah. Right yeah. This is this recent thing, you know, that we've kind of, um, come to terms with of our history more. Uh, so the, the scholarship is probably, I would say way better um and i was just i was reading a piece by his son george um in uh in an 1890s paper the other day there was an editorial um that i was reading and um, in, the, in the 1890s yeah 1890s, son, yeah. Okay. yeah um so you know it was they were really um yeah they were really on you know on point with the challenges that um people of color were experiencing right then you know in this reconstruction period, you know, um, and there was a lot of this kind of the white arrogance in the North where, you know, we went, we went down South to fight for you, um, which was, I mean, even in their own lifetime, they had revised it because that's not why the civil war started. They did go down there to, you know, emancipation was like, you know, an end result, <laughs> but, um, so even in their own, you know, the, the deck first decades after the civil war, there's people in Pittsfield, you know, and these descriptions of people in Pittsfield saying, you know, I went down South to fight for you and, and the war, and, you know, um, it just kind of, it, it, it's interesting how, so a lot of the rhetoric is, is, uh, similar to today's, uh, Facebook dialogues. <laughs> <laughs> Again, uh, history often repeats itself, uh, in some uh, way, shape or form. And, um, and even in recent days, um, to their credit, uh, the Berkshire Eagle has run stories on the redlining in Pittsfield, yeah. um, which, um, I'm just really starting to dig into myself a little bit, but there's a full committee that's yeah. committed itself to uh, doing this this work and researching it. So, so a credit to this committee, uh, and uh, we're looking to have them on the podcast uh, as well, some members of that committee. But um, but that's there too. I don't know if you've uh, seen any of yeah. that in your research. Yeah, yeah, um, I did. I, I consulted a tiny bit on that project, um, and I, I saw that I was able to see the. Um, final presentation for the NAACP, I think it was last week or the week before. Um, amazing, amazing work that committee did. Um, and um, and uh, and sh shout out to Kumar Talaferro because I've been finding my uh, myself overlapping um, with his interests uh, a lot lately and, and, and finding him kind of just signed into the log at the local history section just kind of <laughs> right before I've been there. So, like he, you know, so he, he really, he put in the work. He didn't just sit at home on, on a laptop. Um, he was really digging um in the athenium in the in the stacks so uh yeah there's just really tremendous stuff and it was eye-opening for me i learned a lot that um that i really didn't know after you know years of writing local history stuff mm. so what were some of the things that may have and, and i think and again in this presentation what uh, are some of the key indicators or the, the areas where you're able to see and find this evidence um, that makes it makes it so clear. What are some of the pieces of evidence that that uh, that you look for? Well, there there was a lot brought to bear. Um, they they looked at censuses, they looked at um, deeds and mortgages uh, and things that are all. And then there was this kind of elusive map uh, that was almost like almost like a legend. And and finally, I guess you know there was intervention by Congressman Neal, and it was like a whole thing. They finally found this a like 1930s. Map. 
map that was um, by, uh, you know, I had never seen it before. I, I recognized the name of the the engineer, one of the engineers on it, because he was a very, he did a lot of land plans around, but there, it was basically sort of a um, where you should lend, what neighborhoods were good to lend to and what weren't. And and when you look at it, you know, there there's this clear overlap of uh, systematic kind of, you know, defunding almost of of disinvestment in in certain neighborhoods and it's very much across you know lines of color and lines of ethnic you know desirability for that time period yeah um, and you know it's like it's it was shocking to see you know i i, I wonder wow so it was it was hidden yeah i yeah. mean like and so it was <laughs> where was it hiding i uh, i don't know the full story how they, yeah. they but i know <laughs> that they only found this at the very end they only actually got a copy of it at the very end of this long research process uh and and with great intervention so i it may have been you know somewhere in in a national archives or something but hmm. um yeah just so there's there's a lot out there that's just you can't google and it's just it really um we're going to continue to i think make discoveries that are going to and we have to be ready to revise our ideas as data comes out you know that's the most important thing and that's the hardest thing for mm -hmm. humans to do at all so it is you know because you know uh you know especially when we're invested in the history and i think i mean i think that's also an evolution of uh human beings to be able to accept things you know <laughs> like it's a it's just like sometimes things suck and you got to be able to just move on and learn from it and and not be um and not try to you know i, I don't even i don't even know i mean i just think it just you'd rather be authentic you'd rather be honest with the whole thing so that you can you can do better i don't know i just i i think you know just the fact that this document this map was hidden <laughs> under lock and key somewhere who knows you know and and uh, it's that that is amazing to me but but again understandable you know yeah. the, whatever local banks whatever you know whatever was happening they didn't want it to be known oh yeah yeah and this was i mean there there's been really systematic um you know just eras era after era um you know calculated in the development part of my my walking tour will go into how yeah you know in the macabre pittsfield walking tour i'm going to do uh it's, it's really 1920s focus and it's really like how that as one of the biggest boom decades in pittsfield history how it, when we built much of what's here now much of the this city was built during that decade um and how and for who and who was allowed to live where is um hugely integral to that story um you know because we did uh have this huge boom you know from from 1900 to 1940 there's recurring um but but 1920s saw all this stuff including like the high school a lot of the neighborhoods off of elm street some of which which were explicitly you know restricted sure um so uh yeah a lot of these new neighborhoods was just like you know it was kind of right out there that they were not available to certain kinds of people and they and uh and local banks wouldn't really even loan to people of color yeah. or, or even italians until uh the italian the italians started their own bank because nobody would loan you know mm -hmm. and that that whole neighborhood on uh you know newell street lakeside um grew out of you know a little bank on fence street uh that that 
was Italian run and would loan to Italian. It was just like, like a wave of houses. People had been saving up money and, you know, they just couldn't get mortgages. They just couldn't get house loans. Nobody, none of the banks that uh, would loan. So, hmm. um, yeah, so a, a lot of different groups were, you know, kind of shunted by these decisions into specific parts of our city. And it really, it, it influences so much of how, you know, the land is developed to this day. And, you know, and again, people... and again, so like sometimes we hearken back and have a rosy outlook <laughs> on our past, like, you know, the, the, the kind of ideas that, that lead to slogans like make America great again. Right. These, yeah. these, this, this, this ideal, because, somehow everything was really amazing back in the day and and it, it wasn't i mean yeah. there were some things that are you know great um compared yeah. to maybe today but there are some things that were awful uh yeah most of the, to you today. know they had most of the same problems plus a whole bunch of other problems yeah. that we've eliminated like when, we've you, totally when you talk about this like the the, you know? the idea uh, <laughs> uh of the quote-unquote desirable southeast uh in pittsfield has a whole new connotation. Like it's, it's just, it doesn't feel it's gross, you know, in, in a way, you know, cause you're like, wow, it, it's not that this area of the city was so wonderful. It literally to some extent uh, with uh, the, the, the report on redlining and, and through other history and other ethnic groups being sort of locked out of the game. Uh, it, that's, it's it's not a fair fight <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah, know, yeah. Uh, as far as that goes it's yeah there's really a lot of dark clouds over uh, over a lot of things uh, and I'm, th and this is why you know my tour is called macabre pittsfield it's not like i'm not doing literary pittsfield i'm not doing like you know <laughs> uh i'm not even doing like the housing of pittsfield the uh, um which is the what you know what i kind of do for a living but um it's it's the it's this part that is you know and i'm not you know it's like why why are you focusing on the negative um from from you know all these different eras of histories my last tour was like the 1800s and kind of like the prostitution and the opiate like epidemics then and just like it was like really bad <laughs> folks like if you were a woman you, you your life you you know your life expectancy was crap you know just a lot of things that just um piqued my interest but but now it's um you know so era by era it's like why do you focus on the negative because so many other people have totally excluded it from our histories right um, it, it, yeah the, it's egregious that you know to the that, point we it, have you know a false idea yeah, yeah i mean we yeah. we think we're we're in this world that's spinning into worse and worse chaos when you know a ton of this you know a lot of this good old days mentality which we are really deep on in the berkshires almost i i think in some ways we are a little unique to it because there's things there's things that like you know uh would be lizzie borden famous in any other town that we have like you know really brushed under the rug mm -hmm. um you know serial killers and this this kind of big stuff um so yeah the the dark the dark stuff doesn't fit with you know and maybe it's the like the tourist area thing but um but that's well the funny thing is because I, mean, <laughs> I i look at it again i mean what Salem, Massachusetts yeah. has kind of done a pretty good job marketing something that was really awful yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> over time. And, you know, and not to say you could spin everything to make it all nice and, and dandy, but at the same time, people like real stuff. Yeah. And, yeah, and you know, and the authenticity. There, there's something that we don't talk about much at all 
and I, I think you've talked about it and written about it a, a bit, is this um, how downtown Pittsfield was built. And you've mentioned several times now in our interview about a cemetery and this feeling or this vibe that and I think and people people who are kind of like into the paranormal you know talk about this a little bit and if and if they're sensitive to this stuff they can kind of feel it uh on north street there there is um a, a former cemetery there. yeah <laughs> that you know so t- oh, you know, yeah. tell me how north street and this whole area around park square well there were several was really because they you know um we have this weird thing where you, you can't you know bury people of different uh, ethnicities and different religions in the same cemetery you know so we had the uh, we had the french catholic cemetery that was on melville street um next to uh, next to the church there they had their mm-hmm. own cemetery that was the last one to be moved out there was another cemetery at the common um which was somewhat to replace the original cemetery so the original cemetery probably ran um started about the midpoint of park square and went north towards about where fen street is um by by the time the baptist church was because then the baptists had their own section like as new churches they had and that and was one thing i never around, got as a kid a lot yeah. of churches yeah. I mean, there's what uh two right on park square yeah there's two right down the street on south street there's the baptist church yeah. all within and you can't a, bury a all all the different dead together i mean even if they lived on the same streets when they were alive you can't bury them together because you know zombies i guess <laughs> um, i don't know <laughs> um <laughs> so yeah so there was this uh you know these different sections and um as pittsfield grew um you know, it's not uncommon to see a small towns with the church, the cemetery right in the main street. Um, but as Pittsfield kept growing, that real estate became desired for, uh, you know, commercial and administrative buildings and things. So these, you know, the Pittsfield kind of uh, at first moved the bodies on its own dime. And increasingly it was the impetus was put on families of people who are interred there to wow. relocate yeah man <laughs> that's audacious right that is ballsy <laughs> right so uh, yeah. and most of these a lot of these people are decades dead they had no kin or they people you know people moved around their, their kin were gone in troy they weren't going to hear about this you know they, so uh so a lot of bodies never got moved that that was the long and short of it is um so there's this recurring problem all through the late 1800s into like world war one era where Every time, you know, there's pipes digging or foundation work under the police station, under the churches, all the downtown churches, um, they're finding, you know, skeletons. They're digging sometimes a dozen skeletons, you know, and and just huge. Like it it was it was freaking people out. It was gross, you know, and uh, and I think, yeah, it's it's still still haunts us a little. Yeah. And again, I mean, some people would say, oh, that's baloney. That who cares you know that doesn't mean anything it I, and there are other people who are no, who say wow no there's there's a kind of dark energy um around and um you know i mean i don't know if you know karma you know uh spirituality whatever but there there it can't be the best thing to be yeah. digging up uh graves and and <laughs> you know I, I don't know i just i you know so it doesn't escape me out anymore i i eventually came to a, a point where i'm like um, you know, I mean, I think the, the way it was handled I, to know, like how kind of blase and, and just, you know, um, and, you know, just <laughs> the way it was done kind of is offensive, but, um, the more I think about, it, I mean, probably everywhere we walk is 
graveyard. I mean, people, humans alone have been walking, you know, this continent and since before it was this continent when it was, you know, I mean, there there's human and animal remains under probably every, every, you know, square foot of the earth. Um, you know, so we're just, so, I mean, I just, I, I kind of take it as a matter of course, like the planet is haunted. You know, (laughs) I don't don't worry about which specific houses, the planetic planet is haunted. Um, and, and, you know, even, even, even if you take some houses, I mean, some locations are more haunted. I mean, in other words, like, yeah, I mean, so I don't know what your spiritual beliefs are. How how does that work for you? Do you you just kind (laughs) of, I mean, cause you seem like an evidence-based dude, right? So it's kind of like, all right, well, I hear these stories. I mean, have you felt things uh, that that made you? Uh, I mean, I feel think everybody though? does. It's, it's, I think it's does. how how we how we interpret what we're feeling. You know, whether we take it as. You know, I mean, the the problem is, I I I I see myself as a faulty instrument. You know, as as, a, as scientific instruments go, my perceptions and my senses are, you know. Uh, they can pick up a lot, but you know, they can, it it immediately, you know, the human brain immediately starts interpreting things, you know, as they come in. Um, So we're, we're shaping every, you know, thing we hear, smell, see into a narrative as it comes into our brain. And I've, I've watched this narrative kind of get out of control where, you know, if there's a false historical story about a house uh, and, and there's a confusion, you know, say, you know, Clarissa so-and-so died there and, and the more people hear that story the more people will like I, I heard Clarissa like I heard a ghost say their name you know and then you you dig it up and it's like this person never even existed hmm. you know so all these all these people's experiences were maybe they felt or experienced something but how much there's always this question of like how much of our brain is like turning this into something I can understand hmm. you know out of billions of possible sensory signals hitting my my body at any point um yeah so i mean i i have i have um walked this kind of fine line of like evidence-based skepticism balanced with the fact that you know for 17 18 years i've been writing about spooky stuff and so people tell me their story you know i bet my whole life i've been getting these stories from people and i don't discount people's experiences i don't discount their lived reality um it's just you know so so my my conception of reality is like this big maybe state you know it just gets more agnostic the longer it goes so i'm just like even if you do see an apparition does that mean it's the trapped soul of the dead or can you know is time non-linear and maybe at certain points we see through you know points in reality i mean there's you read all these there's a bazillion theories i mean there's people have been theory, theorizing about ghosts back to you know biblical times mm-hmm. um so there's uh and our our concepts of what ghosts are well, how they have changed a lot you know mm-hmm. I, even just studying in the Berkshires from from the shakers you know in the 1780s and early 1800s you know they're they're communicating with dead you know they're talking to washington and lafayette uh uh you know uh and famous ghosts and uh and having um, native american spirits get them give them hallucinogenic tobaccos that you know are making them yeah. they, and they perceive these experiences as very real mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. um but that's you know th- there's the the way that ghosts talk to mediums in the 1800s seems very different from how people perceive them in like a modern paranormal context they were much more talkative for one thing <laughs> all the ghosts were like oh, i have come back to tell you you know so they're 
there was this whole thing and now mediums are like i'm getting a name with a k um you know it was before it was just like these you know huge pronouncements so our cultural ideas ghosts ufos all these things I, it's been interesting to watch them change mm. so and how we you know yeah we, and and uh, but it sounds like you're open to having something there and so whether it's a different dimension you know maybe a different you know that like you said the the linear time thing that that you know maybe there is something else there maybe we're on different timelines or something or or yeah, what have you all, all kinds tectonic of plates affects you know electromagnetism in our brain i mean who, I, <laughs> I i don't know this is the thing is there's, there's so much out there uh, and there's so much like uh growing awareness that that we we can't know we can't be microbiology we each can't be microbiologists we each can't be particle physicists we each, we can't know all the specialties and all the things that could impact all, you know no one person can have this total perspective this holistic perspective we can try to have an interdisciplinary perspective but there there is a lot we don't know you know yeah. so I, I you know i try not to make big decisions on things uh and and, and you know absolute pronouncements unless there's a, a strong chain of evidence and mm. likelihood yeah um you know there's some people that you know like your ufo sighting is full of shit. i don't care if you've been <laughs> on unsolved mysteries that is bs and your story has changed like about nine times buddy so you know <laughs> i don't know i you know i don't know if other people have seen a ufo but i know that guy's lying because lying is the thing i know exists and that guy's doing it um so yeah you know <laughs> a little bit like that i hear you when um when you're working with people what are some of the things that they're they're looking for um when they're going into the history is it is it for very functional things like oh i need to know the history because we need to know why the deed is this way for legal reasons or is it more curiosity um it varies i would say i would say emotional factors are are kind of the predominant thing there are some um there are some ways that i can kind of illuminate like why things structurally are the way uh you know they are the way um they are in a house um based on when it was built or who the previous owners are mm -hmm. and you can find sometimes you can find the building permits and things for renovations mm -hmm. so something people want to know like but you can't really sometimes you can't find out the things like the aesthetic things people want to know like why did they do that <laughs> like that i can't get in their head to like why they went with <laughs> with the lowered uh, ceiling uh, <laughs> or the enclosed porch um but you know you you can tell them maybe what year and who did it who to blame um so but it's no it's more a sense of place i think it's like um you know to know uh that uh, you know, a wedding reception for somebody took place, you know, in your, your dining room or uh, to know a lot of people do want to know who died in their house. Mm -hmm. uh, and if your house is reasonably old, somebody, somebody died in it. Sure. Um, sure. So, I mean, and people died in homes a lot more. Yeah, long ago. of course, they, 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 they weren't going and dying around, in yeah. a facility or a hospital or, or what have you a lot, yeah. many more people died at home. I mean, at some point, everybody, you know, further enough, the oldest houses, everybody died. Where else would you die? Unless you died in your field behind your plow <laughs> or, or shot in a tavern or something. Like, you know, um, there were no hospitals at first. So, you know, a lot of the early homes, all the owners died there mostly. 
Um, and it's, sometimes it's interesting how they died and, it's, and, and the way that the, a lot of the funerals, um, you know, even well into the 20th century, the funerals would, would be held in homes, viewing would be in homes, you know, and you'd have a dead body there for two, three days, um, you know, even in the 20th century. So we've um, become, you know, and, and I think you hear, I work in healthcare during the day, and you'll hear this more from the hospice people. And they'll talk about how people are a lot more uncomfortable with death today than historically we were, because death was much more personal. Uh, Constant. uh, Constant. It was constant, but also we had a much more personal connection to it because of these reasons that you're talking about. People would die in the homes. People would prepare the bodies themselves. Now there's industries for each of these things. And again, I don't want to get too like, um, you know, dark here, but, but it's not though. It's actually not dark because like death is a part of the human experience and everything, but we, we are not as comfortable today in dealing with that. And I, and I don't know if that's the best thing. Yeah. It's hard to, you know, it's, it's, we certainly don't see you know the sausage how the sausage is made the way way we used to um and we probably you know in an average lifespan don't encounter as much um as frequent death maybe uh as we did in in the space of our lifetime in a a longer lifespan with less child mortality massively less child i mean that is the when people ask me what is the biggest thing that you see the biggest day-to-day difference um, from different historical areas that I research, dead children. Like that is the huge, massive change in society. And people, you know, of all causes, of all causes, not just from vaccines, not just from disease, um, accidental death of children was much more common, um, you know? So there, there's a lot of things that people criticize about the way we raise children, the way we take care of children now, but one thing is is certainly emphatically like undeniable from like more children survive to adulthood from the way that we do things now in many different facets because you know just not a week goes by that i don't see you know stories of kids getting crushed by horse carts falling out of windows like catching on fire you know um so there's just there were more of them they couldn't be as well attended you know big these big families so you know the average family saw deaths of their children you know the uh, most most families did so you know the death was you know more it's kind of constant presence in our life i think in some ways um than it is now whereas now it is like more of a built-up tragedy um to then where you know maybe a little more pragmatic and almost like farm slaughterhouse about it you know it's just like when you've lost three kids like you know the morning is different from you know it's it's a much more of a rare thing today so you know when a child dies like it's a huge deal to us now there was just you know a little paragraph blip from uh you know um so yeah joey didn't make so it so common yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah there it is you know it's, so it's, common. It is, that is amazing but if you look at some of the famous families that had children die so um presumably you know like abraham lincoln i think had a lot of hit yeah. is that <laughs> you know trust my own history here but uh, but you know that happened and so you could imagine if uh, those families that were probably had access to maybe some of the best uh, resources out there um maybe in healthcare or, or whatever it was being called back then um you can imagine that the average family probably had a, a great deal of loss uh, yeah as far as that goes yeah that people i don't think a lot of people think about that <laughs> no no and it was and it was much more and it, and and people were 
<clears throat> yeah, I think that people were a lot more callous to the loss of a child or even even the murder of a child um, back then, especially uh, huh. especially if the child was disabled. I mean, there was a, a so-called mercy killing in, in Pittsfield in the 40s that wow. people were on the fence about. A lot of people were on the fence about whether or not this father should have killed his infant son who had Down syndrome. My God. Because, you, yeah. Unthinkable today. Yeah. Right. Unthinkable yeah. today. Sure. But in the yeah. 40s, that was actually a debate. Yeah. Yeah. People, you know, thought, well, what else was he going to do? Yeah. And, and uh, yeah. And he was he, he was ultimately um, pardoned and, and went on to live his life. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I look at um, some of these. It's interesting that you talk about, like, for instance, the Italians had their own bank um, and that enabled them to, you know, uh, get into, uh, you know, housing and, and that sort of thing and build up, uh, hopefully build up wealth over time. I'm sure they, you know, ultimately did, but you know, you have the Italians, you have the Polish, um, other ethnicities, uh, African-Americans, and, you know, it looks, it makes you look at things differently when you realize that it wasn't just like, oh, well, we're together. We're going to have a neighborhood together. I think that's kind of the mentality that we have. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, geez, all the Polish people lived over there. That was great. You know, and all the Italians lived over there. Isn't that nice? It, it, it wasn't because of that. It, it wasn't, yeah. you know, that wasn't the reason. The reason was like by absolute necessity yeah. that they had to stick together. Yeah. Um, you know, the ethnicities weren't necessarily nice to each other. And, and, the, and as, economically uh being being shut out i i that's that's a big takeaway that i think when people hearken back yeah. maybe they don't recognize that uh, the, the, these separations of different neighborhoods happened out of that necessity not because oh geez we we just want to stick together yeah uh, as an ethnicity yeah it was just it was availability of options it was availability of options and it was just like you know um, enclaves of neighborhoods started because that's where you could access, you know, um, you know, and they'd have, they'd have their own stores and things like that. And, and because nobody was like trying to, you know, extend any help of language barriers or anything like, you know, there was, there was no interest in having a bilingual society or a multilingual society that, you know, it was just like, you get you get no slack you know um and it was just like you're lucky you're lucky we let you in this country <laughs> um you know so there's there wasn't this past era where you know i think we really like had a parade for immigrants there was never this time when we really it was like maybe it's you know i think you know some it, it might have been less uh of this charge um topic sometimes than it is now but it was never it was always rocky it was always rocky for every immigrant group coming here and it was never like you know, roll out the red carpet. It's never like <laughs> yeah, we're and, begrudgingly and, doing and, this because and, it's and, our Christian duty. And yeah, we look yeah. back at fondness. Right. Uh, you know, my uh, my dad grew up on Wilson Street in the Polish uh, section mm -hmm. of the city. He went to Holy Family Church. Yeah. And again, you think about it. Um, you know, back in the day, you're like, oh well, that that's that's too bad. The Polish church is gone. You know, and and everything. And Mount Carmel was the Italian church, and and you can go right down the line of things. But you know, at its very core, it it, it was you know it was sort segregation. Of, yeah. yeah, it was it, in, a way, segregation. in a way it was. Um, even though you know, there's great beauty in all of that 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 comes out of these things, and and all the different um, histories and memories in each of those churches. But, um, but I think that is fascinating. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I was just looking in a little the, the other day at, uh, at St. John's, the, um, the Ukrainian 
Catholic Church mm-hmm. um, that was decommissioned a few years ago, and and it kind of was interesting how um, the properties, the kind of little Ukrainian neighborhood, um, sort of uh, dovetailed with the Polish neighborhood because they were both, you know, their homelands were both in this kind of you know wartime situation, similar wartime situation in Europe, um, and so they kind of like almost there was a little bit of like helping each other, you know, uh, adapting the Ukrainians kind of were able to piggyback a little bit on the success of the the Polish and establishing a little neighborhood and mm-hmm. built off from there. But, um, but yeah, I mean, uh, these things tied into, it was in waves as, as things, world events, you know, shaped Pittsfield the same as they shaped other places. There's a wave of Russian Jews in the 1890s because of what the czars were doing, mm-hmm. um, you know, and then the repression crackdowns there. So, Hmm. Um, so everything, you know, and the, and the twenties, I think is really gonna, I think people are going to be surprised in, in my tour, how, um, things like, you know, the, the beginning of the drug war, alcohol prohibition, women getting the right to vote in 1920, all these things kind of like these world national world and national events really intersect in Pittsfield, like so much and the, and, and Pittsfield is so part of um you know it still has its own kind of new england you know uniqueness and weirdness but it's it's very much a product of what was happening in the world um maybe even more so you know i mean i think we're seeing that sort of that now i mean the the history of pittsfields from the early 2020s will be laced with pandemic and you know um a new real estate you know kind of uh boom maybe and we'll see um but you know very similar circumstances 100 years ago you have the very end of the influence of pandemic the worst you know death toll at the time um from any from any plague um and we're coming out of that we get this building boom going on in Pittsfield. We have a controversial new high school to build. Um, you, you know, they have uh, the, the rising opioid crisis again um, in this post-war environment. Um, and cause that, that really ramps up in the 1920s and thirties. And, and you see the, the beginning of like heroin cartels and in, in like New York and organized crime start to take an interest in Pittsfield. And um, so a lot of, a lot of these historical threads that are like, you know, very much national, national things um came to bear in making and then pittsfield took its own unique ingredients and you know shook them around with those and and we see um we saw what we got but yeah a lot of it was very surprising to me and i think i think people who take uh, my tour are going to be um i don't want to give too much away but there's a lot of murders jewel heist bootlegging <laughs> the kkk uh, the chinese tong wars that were going on in the u.s at that time a lot of uh, interesting things came to bear in in 1920s pittsfield and uh, and you can actually kind of walk and stand in places where um a lot of these things kind of seem like epic like distant you know great Gatsby, you know, flapper kind of events, you know, it's like, it seems very Hollywood, but it's like this happened, you know, they screened birth of a nation, you know, right on North street and they had Klansmen really? riding down the street. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was sold out. It was sold out, John in Pittsfield and North Adams birth of a nation went for days and we had Klansmen riding in hoods, promoting it, you know, um, with handbills on North street. Um, and then, by the mid 1920s, the Klan was claiming they had 600 members in Pittsfield. 
which uh, which was Berkshire Clan Nine. So that's that's there was enough clans that we were number you were nine. Number, wow. Uh, wow, in the county. So yeah, hmm. yeah, it was. Um, but it was you know it was a uh, this reactionary uh, push to um, you know the 1920s saw um, more mortgages um you know to black homeowners um then 1910 19 the 1910s or the 1930s um but and it's still a negligible amount compared to the amount of mortgages i mean everybody was building in the 20s but um but you know there's this reaction to a huge amount of pittsfield speaking different languages now probably the most multilingual we've ever been um, was probably in the 19 you know 1900 to 1930 um, so there's this reaction to this radically changing culture, this new modern Pittsfield that doesn't remind them of the good old days. Mm. Um, and because that's in the uh, 1920s. Uh, and so because take us back a little bit <laughs> to the original Pittsfield was English. Like, yeah. You know, uh, so again, Pittsfield named after William Pitt, uh, who never yeah. came to Pittsfield, never, yeah. came, never came to the United, or never came to America, uh, pre-United uh, States, but uh, so you know, early on, originally again settled by the British, there there were um, indigenous people here that yeah. presumably oh, yeah. were pushed out. Um, or, you know, yeah, you had colonizers come in probably around the you know the time of the so-called French and Indian War. Um, Pittsfield, you know, Pittsfield was too, uh, the Berkshires in general, like, but Pittsfield and, and a lot of Western Mass was too um, engaged in, in warfare uh, and, and disputed and, and uh, you know, conflicts. There's, there seemed to be a lot of conflict in West Pittsfield, uh, from what I understand, uh, you know, if you go into the mountain, into New York State, there was a lot of clashes between um the uh, indigenous people and and the settlers uh for, uh, for that's from what i understand yeah well i mean uh, I, um the mohicans the mohicans were one of the few tribes that sided with the english um in here yeah, and the stockbridge indians were uh so-called were um one of the only and they 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 had had disastrous wars with the mohawk which were part of the iroquois confederacy um but a lot of a lot of the tribes in the Northeast were siding with the French and, and um, the, the English in Massachusetts didn't have a lot of indigenous allies. Um, so the, um, so the Mohawk were sort of, but the Mohawk themselves had had conflict with, with some of these other tribes. So they were, they were already, you know, they had already been targeted in some ways and driven from other, other areas and, you know, lost territory. So, um and then you know um sort of after after the french and indian war after the revolutionary war um it was all just sort of you know forgot we didn't we didn't need the extra help and there was more and more settlers coming out so you know slowly the land in stockbridge and and um you know other hunting land around the berkshires was just you know bought out and and taken and you know the, it, it was mostly purchased but the land sales weren't always you know the uh we didn't have the kind of forcible removal that other other areas and sometimes i think um the berkshires are almost envious um you know sort of the progressive berkshires i think sometimes we wish we had more of a native american history to confront um it, it was relatively you know it was relatively brief the interaction you know um so most of 
most of the people in the of the 1800s really had never even seen you know mohican um hmm. member of the tribe you know they were they were already gone so um but we we that sort of after the fact we invented all kinds of legends about them so most of our local native history that we grow up with wakona nesikis bash bish falls you know a lot of this is just it's just purely white legends that people come up with a hundred years after you know the fact hmm. um sometimes sometimes not until the, like the late you know 1800s early 1900s um all these things wakona and nesikis these are not mohican words mahewe these are you know things that white people made up so that, so that's a made up story the um so just remind us what the legend is uh i think i recall it but the wakona Nesicus. Yeah, uh, Wakona was uh the chief's daughter and um the uh the evil shaman wanted her to marry uh Mohawk to make some kind of treaty or something which is not solid ethnographic history is just like not how it worked but you know but the yeah so um Nesicus was um a Wampanoag who had fled here from the the King Philip's war um probably the worst conflict um that we know of in massachusetts history in the 1670s um so it's set in this con kind of concrete time period unlike some of the the native lore but it's you know there's there's no um there's no linguistic connection of these words these names and these words and there's no evidence that the, any of these stories were in circulation before the you know the late 1800s because I mean, so. again I mean, during those times a lot of stories were made up. I yeah. mean, look at, I mean, <laughs> we, we go to the story of how a baseball was invented, right? So we have our own sort of history there, but the, the original story is total malarkey. Uh, yeah. The original story being Abner Doubleday invented the game in Cooperstown and, and a bunch of, you know, civil war veterans or something or, yeah. or whatever, uh, you know, started playing this game and, and it was invented. It's, it's a hogwash, right? But like, but th that was really, common then so i'm sure that's something you run into like um if if you don't have any sort of like backing evidence uh to, to some of these things people could make stuff up and and word of mouth is a really powerful thing and then if someone writes it down on a piece of paper somewhere and circulates it oh yeah then there's a lot of legitimacy there and we're still we're still making up local history and and especially you know when there's no one to challenge it like that when there isn't um uh you know a constant uh, when there isn't a presence of a mohican population living here to challenge it you know the the uh, folks that are protesting the name change of the taconic braves are just fabricating their own like mythology you know they're just you know th there's this new like i see on social media just people you know repeating these recently made up you know um and or regurgitated facts like there was a tribe called taconic so like why aren't they changing the school there was no taconic tribe there was no tribe named taconic that was the the mohican word for the mountains like there's we're just making up this new mythology to kind of knee jerk that our team name from high school like you know that's that's my high school memories like you're destroying my his my fake my fake mohican history that i made up that you know that we made up in the, the 70s so you know and it's like it's crazy because you know historically most of the schools around here have had a ton of mascot cha changes you know uh what was it herberg used to be you know when it was south junior high it was the sergeants you know because the phs generals and the yeah, yeah. The sergeant you know but all these the the middle schools they, they've changed their mascot name but the only one that 
has provoked this crazy rage that you know that's out there now about it is the one where we're, we're sort of being rightly called out that it was a racist name because it is because like yeah. you know the national congress of american indians has said for like 30 years please stop using names like this specifically the name braves we don't we this is why it's offensive like this has all been out there since like atlanta braves were challenged 30 years ago you know people had plenty of time to google it you know and, and educate themselves but you know so it, it is bad it, like it is a bad look you know it is a bad look like it's it's not really disputable but there's this like total effort because we we feel like we're being called out because it's somehow like you know it, it, our our retroactively we feel like our high school memories are making us feel racist or something i don't know like hmm. you know if you were brave in high school like it, that's not what it's saying like you didn't you were in high school you didn't weren't trying to be you you didn't come up with a team name you weren't trying to be racist like we get it yeah no one's saying you're racist because you were you're and things, your and, we're and just it's changing it's, it's okay to recognize that it's a completely you know it's okay to change the high school yeah. mascot with new information yeah. with with you know understanding history and life better we can make changes and that's okay and it doesn't but if mean we don't want you know if we don't want to know better then we don't have to do better you know, if we if we just lie about it and make up misinformation, then we don't have to know better and do better, you know, as so we don't have to take an action. It's, it's a beautiful thing. I mean, it must be fun doing this uh, work that you do every day. It, you know, it really it's it's fascinating. It's fascinating. And I think um, and it can be it can be a little like um, it can be a little toxic, like imbibing. You know old historical newspapers just hour after hour but it, it can it can be very heartwarming too and i think um you know i like i love new homeowners like i love their enthusiasm about finding out about their house but i i gotta say some of the favorite some cases that i've done um for clients have been people who are former occupants or people who want me to research the home that they grew up in that mm. somebody else owns now um and i gotta kind of like discreetly take a couple pictures yeah um but <laughs> yeah um no sometimes i reach out to the current owners if i if i need to but um yeah i like if i can kind of reconstruct um and give families back a little something about their own family heritage a little like you know maybe it's a clipping about their dad that they never saw or a little detail um or just that kind of context of where their house fit in the in the narrative of the neighborhood and the and the people who live there before that sense of place um they they seem really um they seem really moved by that and it's really like that's a great experience like that's what makes all the obituary scouring and like the four ticks i picked up last week and crawling around in cemeteries you know, <laughs> yes. um worth it you know it, it's it's um because it is it is neat to connect that you know and to see the way that people connect to not not only where they live now but where they have lived you know and the lives you know the parts of themselves that that uh are history too yeah and i think you know the other thing is you come from an interesting perspective because i've seen you actually because we were talking about this uh, the the rosy glasses that people have for the past um and i saw a post of yours recently that said you know wait a minute i grew up and this is how it was, <laughs> you know. What I'm saying because we all look back, say, "Oh, back when I grew up, you know, things were like this or things were like that," and oh, wow, that was a wonderful time. But again, you know, in that context, uh, you know, you're you're you look back, and it's not rose-colored glasses for you. Well, yeah, I mean, I every uh, you know, it's kind of this known historical fact that you know every era has 
looked back as though there was a past good old days. They're, they're you know, going back to 3000 year old Sumerian tablets, people are talking about, you know, the, the younger generation now is just so disrespectful and they're just like, it's not the same. We remember, we remember the past um, as being more innocent because we were more innocent. You know, um, it's not, it's not by and large the world that lost its innocence you from when we were kids. Personally, it's us was more because you were a kid. That's yeah. really interesting. Yeah, we point. were, we were. You know, hopefully, people were basically happy and things were at least, if nothing else, simpler when they were kids. So people remember it as being simpler times. It was simpler times, but because we we interpret everything out from ourselves um, as a default. So, you know, of course the times when we were kids were less complicated than the times we're living in now, because we're <laughs> we like have to deal with the complexities <laughs> of it. Now, this is like the simplest time in history for my four-year-old. This is, this is like, you know, this is the best Springside parks ever been. And this is the, like, this is, you know, it's a magical time. Um, but, you know, you see every generation, it's just, um, you know, so, people my age are saying it and, and boomers are going like, you don't know, you don't know how it was in the, and they, and the boomers might have the strongest case. Cause there is this like period from like post world war two to um, you know, the early to mid sixties where things are kind of a little mellower, like the homicide rate is down and, and, you know, <laughs> right, things, yeah. there's a lot of prosperity and a lot of people are doing fairly well. So there's kind of like a, you know, that was if there was a sweet patch and, but it wasn't a yeah. sweet patch for everybody. It no, was it, like it if you were a person of color or, you know, I was like just going to say that. Right. right. Still. Uh, so yeah, it's, yeah, it's all relative to who, who we are, and what we experience. Yeah. And yeah. And you had a really good baby boomers ourselves. and then you screwed it all up. Uh, <laughs> much kidding. <laughs> no disrespect to you, baby boomers out there, but not just kidding. Um, sort of. Um, but, uh, but that, that's, um, I think one of the first times I remember seeing you out uh, in public, I don't know, maybe I, we'd met before, but uh, was out at, at Springside Park. And it was that big concrete thing. I don't even oh, know yeah. what to call it. It's not there anymore. I think they removed it, but this, Ooh, yeah, most of it. Because yeah. we used to, you know, like when I ran cross country at Pittsfield High School, uh, we'd get and get on top of that thing, this big, massive oh, yeah. concrete thing. I don't even know what it was there for. It was what? a water reservoir. It was a water reservoir. It was weird. Okay. Yeah. GE like, built it for themselves. Yeah. <laughs> like, what? like, why would you put a water reservoir there? I don't know. Well, back <laughs> back when GE was growing, they were very skeptical of the fire, the city's um, fire control I see. capacity. So they pumped water from Silver Lake in a huge tunnel that's still under there it's bricked off my father stood in the ge side of it but it ran all the way from silver lake up to they pumped water up the all the way up wow. the hill um, oh, to that man. big concrete structure um Holy and uh, yeah and this is like 1910 so there's still like a tunnel under there yeah so underground it probably uh it probably runs right under like about norman ave okay and, and uh, it's all underground it's been sealed off for probably a hundred years because they, you know, by the 1920s, thirties, like, I think the city's water, uh, the city's hydrants had caught up that GE wasn't like, we're, we're going to lose everything. Yeah. Um, so they abandoned it and eventually in like 1960, they just, you know, it was already like Springside park was all around it. So like, Hey, the city will take this land. Um, wow. And, and luckily that was not a site we had to remediate, <laughs> but well that's, well, that's the thing because you mean, I mean, at that time what they put, it was water before they were putting PCBs in the water. Luckily, I see. Okay. So, so, so Silver Lake is another thing. Um, you've jumped in Silver Lake, right? Uh, yeah. Once yeah. or twice. <laughs> so, um, 
Silver Lake did exist. It wasn't a created lake, right? No, no. Yeah, it's on the earliest, earliest. But it, it was expanded. It was probably. I think a some people smaller. may think, oh, well, GE just must have made that lake so they could put their PCBs there or yeah. something like that. <laughs> it's mean, a fair assumption. I mean, we, yeah, we yeah. changed the water, the hydrology of this city so much. You know, you look at the old maps. I mean, all the lakes have changed shape some. Um, and, the, and the rivers and the where we've dammed things off at Mill Street and Bel Air Pond and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, we, we've hugely changed and we changed the shape and the size, expanded Silver Lake um, even before GE when there was like a hat factory there. Um, but you can see it's it's on the oldest like 1700s map. It's called Ensign's Pond. And it's like it's right there with Ensign's Pond and Goodrich Pond. And, um, and they all had different names. You know, no Why did they change it to Silver Lake? I wonder. I don't really, I don't remember exactly what year when it was changed. It was changed from Ensign's Pond because Ensign, some, you know, somebody named Ensign owned the land around it um, to Hatter's Pond because there was a hat factory. Um, and then probably maybe, probably after the hat factory was gone and nobody could remember why it was Hatter's <laughs> Pond. They called it Silver Lake. Um, and it was regarded as beautiful. It was a huge, it was, uh, you know, this was a pristine um, because it's water such a, I mean, body you, in our city. If you city. grew up, I mean, you knew like Silver Lake was yeah. like, it was embedded in your soul. Like yeah. you don't even go near that thing. You don't go, you know, obviously you don't go in it. It was so heavily polluted, but then that um, sort of connection between the word silver almost says, okay, well, it's full of like, like metals and stuff like that, you know, as opposed to, I thought it was, I think it was originally silver. meant to be beautiful and scenic. Right. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> no, it's just it, like on a, heavy on a, metal on toxicity. Calm fall morning. It's just crystal clear. And maybe yeah. it seems like silver or something like that, yeah. but yeah, cause uh, there's no, it wasn't all auto, you know, malls up and down East street and it wasn't, yeah, it was, but it's been, you know, it was heavily industrialized and a lot of our lakes. Uh, and I think what people forget now is just like, you know, you almost have to worry more about the local lakes that had all kinds of mills and commercial businesses dumping stuff, not PCPs necessarily, but petroleum and other things for years and years and haven't had an EPA mandated like multi-million dollar cleanup. Mm -hmm. um, and that was people, you know, thought I was out to lunch when I jumped in Silver Lake. It's just like, you know, I mean, this was, that was when the swimming was best it's ever going to be they just put that sand they cap just put in. It there yeah who knows if that sand cap's going to work long term you know i'm not sure that was I the right know. design but i'm not an expert um so you know this is this is like freshly pumped in clean clean water was, the swimming was good um <laughs> but you know who knows who knows goodrich pond uh is probably now far more polluted now mm. um and uh but who even knows about you know like morewood lake and things like that you sure. know these have all had like you know been industrialized lakes um yeah that, what, what, yeah what, what who used morewood lake uh because i know it's the ice place for a while yeah okay yeah. so it's, it was it's right near i know it's there. right near railroad tracks but yeah. um so you know maybe there's some runoff there uh but uh but so what was near morewood lake so like opposite side of the country club opposite side of the lake you can still find if you crawl around in the bushes you can still find all the footings and the the concrete there was a ice uh manufacturing outfit there and they'd cut ice off the lake hmm. um haul and just load it up onto trains and uh and those big big business dozens and dozens of people work there during the winter yeah no refrigerators so oh, you know, oh, refrigerator. yeah yeah so you're, you're, <laughs> you're you know so you had to buy you know if you needed ice for shipping things or keeping anything uh you had to buy it like you know from lakes, it right. came so, from lakes. So they were literally you know, just cutting it out, I, putting it on conveyors, and 
um, and bring it up to the railroad tracks. And, Who knew? There's so much money in yeah. ice. Biggest industrial <laughs> accident in Pittsfield. It was when uh, when that place blew up. Uh, boiler blew up. Went sky high. Seventeen dead. Really, yeah, bad. Yeah, wow. Pretty much killed the killed the ice business on that lake. Did and the country club was there at the time. The country club, um, yes, yeah, the country club was newly, relatively newly formed. That had been the um, uh, the Moorwood family property um, originally, but um, not originally, but yeah, <laughs> before country club. Huh. Um, so it was it was late eighteen hundreds, maybe. I'm, I'm what? Uh, yeah, I think. That, well, they started. Yeah, I think they started organizing the country club around late eighteen nineties, and um, they bought that property shortly shortly that uh, thereafter hmm. yeah the exact years came in, but that's a, a very old house it's a 1700s house oh is the house um, still there or the country club house oh so the oh, so yeah yeah, that, okay, yeah, that. yeah. The, the one right on south street oh yeah, yeah, yeah. okay yeah. okay so but there's but they owned everything around there yeah, yeah. the whole state for most of yeah i think and I, some of those bigger estates I, you, it's funny because as i'm saying i'm like yeah duh it's the big house right on on the road <laughs> um that was a that was a house and and they converted it into the the country club yeah. and you know a lot of those big like as an example well first of all i want to is there any recognition of that accident anywhere um like a plaque or something no just any kind of um, you know you, you think the country club may have something no. <laughs> like, i ran a piece in my berkshires a while ago and um you know i think you know every once in a while it'll throw like a retrospective will run in the eagle or something um but it, it was by far the worst um, wow. you know it was on par with some of the losses at the uh the Hoosick tunnel and the just mass just instantaneous like tragedy you know dozens wounded and then just 17 just instantly killed Hmm. yeah so that was the Moorwood uh property and then so you have the hillcrest um which tell me about that one a little bit off of well it's tour court now but off of west street yeah presumably and then that ultimately turned into the hospital but that was originally i assume a uh, yeah, a big property, a gilded then. age mansion, basically. Um, yeah, Pittsfield. I mean, Pittsfield gets left out of these kind of gilded age cottage mansions because a lot of our stock didn't survive. Um, and and it was also it was not the New Yorkers like Pittsfield's. Whereas Lenox and Stockbridge got a lot of New York um, society and New York money. Pittsfield was like the called the Chicago colony people. It was a lot of Chicago huh. uh, wealth. That That's interesting. Their summer. I states. never would have uh, thought that. Yeah. Yeah, um, and a lot of them have been torn down. A lot of the, um, a lot of the houses that I profiled are built on, um, and sometimes from materials that were salvaged from a lot of these big houses that were down on East Housatonic, and um, oh. uh, and they had, you know, um, Larnie. Well, you probably remember the uh, the Bartlett Ave um, uh, Elmwood that burned uh, the apartment yeah. building burned a few. Was that originally? Ago. Wasn't that the first Miss Halls? Uh, or is that a different I think building? It, yeah, I think it was at it, one point. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that was that was the Larned Estate, and they, you know, everything on that whole section of Bartlett Ave. Bartlett Ave didn't exist; it was just that estate. Hmm. Um, and they and these, you know, so there was a lot of houses over there that were like the entire block yeah. uh, now, and it's now a city block. But mm-hmm. um, but uh, yeah, they went down Pittsfield had much more of a housing like crunch than Lennox or Stockbridge ever did. Well, so and, you know, the other thing is you can down. imagine in sort of a mini urban area, 
you have then these conversions of use. So yeah. as an example, Hillcrest didn't sit there and become, you know, a, a Ventford Hall or something like that. Like that. They, they, someone said, Hey, let's put a hospital here. Yeah. Uh, and, and ultimately they did. And you can probably take maybe a few of those examples. I don't know any others. That's just the top of my head, oh, yeah. but uh, some that may have been uh, converted. I don't know what uh, Miss Hall's was originally on, on Holmes road. Uh, I think that was just built just for for that well they bought a mansion they bought an earlier mansion um the colonel cutting mansion it burned down um the, so the original miss halls on Holmes road burned down uh, and they rebuilt they, i think right in the late 50s or 1960s so the so the the oldest buildings now are are more recent but it was yeah it was originally an estate um like canoe meadows was an estate um that house is gravesley is long gone hmm. um yeah a lot of the houses didn't uh, so although oliver wendell holmes um yeah. estate out on holmes road you can um you can airbnb a little oh, yeah. cottage out on that now which um, house is that i've always wondered honestly i don't even, i mean i i grew up off holmes road it's you can't see it from the road yeah it's, right. it's one of those winding lanes that comes off of holmes road on, on the left the, uh east side of the, towards lennox of the road okay on the yeah yeah on the east side yeah. okay yeah you can't see it from the road but uh okay okay that's, yeah, because yeah. so you got a lot of you, you know, know it's Holmes Road, and yeah. uh, and you got a Oliver off of it, and so there's yeah. you know, Wendell's and other. <laughs> I don't know. If they're all, like, I don't know if that was, all, but you know that that's something that growing up in Pittsfield, you know, I mean, you know these streets, but at some point, I'm sure you became fascinated with just how street names were were named. Oh yeah, and renamed a lot of times too. That's one of one of the things that makes my job hard. I want makes people need to hire me too is that <laughs> when you research sometimes your street wasn't named your street uh you know for its whole history some some streets that i've done have been renamed twice um and then a lot of them been renumbered too so you, you you know if you're going back with a certain address your house uh i i just did a property to love us and leave us um dog daycare that place has had like five different addresses over the no kidding the, that, yeah, that, that little been, side street off of west Virginia street yeah it's been considered yeah. part of three different streets um and it's uh it's been listed under like five different addresses over time so it was it was like kind of a, beta, you know, a really, like looking uh, through uh, a weird one and i can't remember the name of the middle street that that is there but uh gale avenue and, and yeah. gale avenue is has for kind of being an out there uh street it's, it's it has quite a bit of history yeah it's kind of um and so the, it but it kind of winds around and it used to be just gale ave went straight through and now it kind of cuts it turns into another street yeah and they rename that area and then it reconnects to the outer uh gale avenue and the old timers on gale ave talk about how gale avenue you can take it on the map of the city of Pittsfield mm -hmm. and, and draw a line and it connects right perfectly with William Street. And allegedly that was part of the Boston to Albany stagecoach road or something like that. That's the story that um that that I heard. I don't know if that was a sort of older major thoroughfare that that went east and west or no. Um kind of. I mean all those all those West Pittsfield streets have been rerouted some. The, you know, there's uh route you know route 20 is the oldest and longest uh road in the country you know so route 20 is just route 20 has uh been there pretty long you know since back in the shaker days and gone all the way hmm. um to the west coast but um 
the bar, you know, the intersection near where Barker Road came off of it, uh, you know, um, Gale Ave, all, all these streets have been slightly rerouted over time, sometimes a couple of different times. So, yeah, when you look on the maps, there's there's streets that were straight that now they're like, you know, wavy. There's streets that were wavy that, that now they're like more um, uh, of a uh, acute angle. So it's it's. Um, yeah, it's fascinating to see how the land has changed. And and, and West Pittsfield is tricky, too, because the mapping wasn't as good as some parts of town. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, they get out to a certain point and they're like, all right, the <laughs> Pomeroy's. Yes, and then, yeah. yeah, here there be shakers, you know, <laughs> that, so Darby shakers. <laughs> <laughs> but then, you know, but then we started having the streetcars and we needed like a little bit better mapping to, you know, to to uh, stops and things like that. And, and, and they had uh, what was called the shaker depot for the for the railway out the streetcars out um and what what the hell happened to that what where did they go why did they just get rid of they didn't have any made, babies because they were no 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 oh, the, shakers. the shakers i'm like where do they go the, I'm talking about the- john do you know how the, you know how this works <laughs> i'm talking about the streetcars so the, oh yeah the, oh they pulled them all up cars killed them cars killed them so I mean, fast yeah yeah they they it was a short it was a short period of Pittsburgh history it was short and it was very resented um it was it was um by many people many people hated it as much as people hate bike lanes now in pittsfield um, they hated the the streetcars or the streetcars or pulling them yeah. Out. okay okay yeah they they hated the streetcar well i mean in in classic pittsfield fashion um <laughs> pittsfield hated them when it went in and they hated it when people took it out they were offended and uh, like the boat in allendale hated it when it was put in cried when it was and now we, out, and we look back and say yeah, oh remember that loss. boat <laughs> Tragic loss. <laughs> that um, is funny. Of these you know, the funny things. thing is, I don't know. You know, you know what's really weird? Why are there seagulls at Allendale? I don't understand that. And I, I, mean, I, I don't know. Because of the I'm, boat. I, I, blame I, the boat. I know. Like, <laughs> Generations <laughs> later, the stories are still told among the gulls. The gulls were never there when I was a little. <laughs> and French fries. Probably people <laughs> dropping French fries. From That's that probably massive pit. Like, but I, I just I always wonder or... that. Like, I maybe I don't know. I there's an old story about how. Uh, you don't see a lot of pigeons in downtown Pittsfield. Yeah. Um, there, there's an old story. You know, I, don't, I don't know if it's true, although I heard it from a really good source that they they literally uh, poisoned the pigeons. <laughs> you got you have to look this one up. It wouldn't but, surprise but, me. Um, yeah, there was I'll, a guy shooting pigeons downtown I'll, at one I'll point. T- I'll, t- <laughs> I'll tell you. I mean, it's not funny because I mean, literally, they like yeah. they just all dropped dead. But um, that's the story. I'll tell you the source after the show. I'm not gonna, <laughs> I'm not gonna <laughs> out it. But um, but uh, you know, again, weird things. But that boat. Um, you know, originally it was the idea that oh, Pittsfield is a sinking ship, and that and that, but that's not what the artist no, was intending at all. And, you know, I don't even know what the artist actually was intending. It's just kind of like I thought this was cool to put this half of a boat like that looks like it's sinking. Yeah, that was like the, his thing. The, you know, he did uh, half. You know, half uh, thing sculptures of things you know coming out of the ground. It was like you can you can Google some of his other pieces. Like, but I think at the time he did say it was rising. It was like right, know, rising. <laughs> like that's a weird way. The to CB be- was rising. <laughs> That really is a weird way to to say right. Like there's other, yeah, you know, maybe you know, Phoenix was coming out of the parking lot. Or something. Well, there's a long history of phallic architecture, you know, <laughs> rising up out of the ground. Uh, but <laughs> but Allen, I mean, what a ma- Coatesville is um, is one of those things you look at, and, and, like what a travesty of development 
from uh, an original, you know, what was its own kind of like intact little community with its own school, its own post office, its own, it was like a little borough of Pittsfield. And up until, you know, even into the 40s, it was, you know, and then you just, you can look at aerials from like the 30s to the 50s and see like they just trashed it. They just, mm. they just uh, strip mauled it and asphalted yeah. it and, and uh, killed the neighborhood. Yeah. And, the neighborhood. and, and there are examples of, uh, I mean, of course, there are cities that were completely, I mean, if you look at North Adams as an example, they really screwed up their downtown. I mean, they used to yeah. have these beautiful and, and they, tore up half of it we kind of saved like a good chunk of our downtown like so downtown was sort of salvaged through urban renewal it was i mean yes everyone bemoans the loss of the train station and that was a big loss yeah but compared to many other communities we did pretty well through urban we didn't take down renewal. as many blocks as north adams yeah, yeah north That's adams true. really was devastating but not, you know again those are just two cities but i i look at um a city where i spent a lot of time because I went to college in Philadelphia. And traditionally in Philadelphia, they have uh, four squares. So there are four squares and then a center square. And the center square is the city hall. And then they have these like sort of four corners. And you can look at each of them and see how urban renewal either left them completely unscathed or completely devastated it. And if you look at a place like Rittenhouse Square in Philadelphia, um, it's amazing it's a bit beautiful there's restaurants around uh it's very expensive housing in that nearby area and then there's another one i think it's franklin square which is literally surrounded by highway on ramps and and all that and it's just a ghost town and it's a mess you know yeah. it's just it's nothing you'd want to bring your kid to it's a, it's a, literally a, a park that is is like a ghost town um and and so forth so you can see how planning can completely make or break any any area any area and so like allendale i mean that was at the time they're like okay we're this is the new thing we're shopping and and transportation and people are going to go in and out and this is going to be how we're going to do things it really was devastating to a cohesive neighborhood you can't even talk about bike lanes how do you even walk from the allendale shopping center that vicinity to out to Berkshire Crossing, there's not even a sidewalk yeah. there. I mean, it's 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 really uh, a, a disaster as far as planning yeah. goes. And now we got a Taco Bell out there too. So let's just uh, you know, I could <laughs> yeah, there's I no could, sign of it. I could yeah, <laughs> ma- massive improvement in the coastal <laughs> no, area. I mean, it was funny because my good friend Chris Yan uh, was really committed to saving that old crane building. Oh, yeah, I remember that. That's yeah. now urgent I was there care, for that right? And so and 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 so it was interesting because the developers and, and everybody had said, well, you know, Zenus Crane never slept there. This this building is, you know, they literally said that. And uh, she worked so hard and they and they saved it. They found something that would go in there and they actually saved it. And then ironically, right next to it, they rip up this whole area, part of the boulders, yeah. um, uh, trails and, and wildlife and yeah, everything to put this Taco Bell there. Um, it's just like, man, sometimes you think, you get some progress here and then it's just like i don't know how did they put that there anyway that's that's, that's i mean uh, i think you know so much so many years of usage you know it, it, we had opened the gates for them yeah, we, we to the point where we'd be 
singling them out if we didn't let them right. you know do the same crap everybody else has been doing out there for decades <laughs> um, but yeah that crane building was really interesting it proved like the demolition delay ordinance yes. works it yes. works um and i do some of some of um uh one piece that i did recently for a client was a demolition um order it was for the old uh top of the old bakery on seymour street the um uh, the corner of Seymour and Wakona there, that's going to be a cannabis shop, um, which is another, you know, layer of changing usage that we're seeing now, but, um, the, there, the criteria, you know, it makes, it makes sense to have the historical commission look and check and really do the due diligence. Um, and to be the one, I know, you, I think you were on the council when it was decided to take the community development board kind of out of that loop and, and make the final authority, Maybe. the historic commission. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> um, yeah. Cause, well, I think it was, it was like after the, the North street combat and the historical commission said there should be a delay, but the community development board overruled them. And then, you know, we realized like maybe we community development board doesn't need to be in the loop on historic yeah. decisions. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you know, um, you know, because there's a different perspective. I mean, the CDB is development. You know, they're, they're yeah. kind of there to be pro development and to get the development, and so it's a different mission. But it works. That was a building that you know um, they still could have demolished it after enough of a delay, but the delay was enough. You know, giving a six month or a one year where you're like, no, you can't demo and, and make it this sell it to this person right here. Yeah. You know, you got it. I wish. I wish it had worked. I wish it had worked on the pl old Plunkett yeah. School which is now uh, a complete disaster yeah, because accessible. there's nothing there. And, um, and I think that's the, that's a lesson in community development. I, I don't know if there's anything that could have been done back then that could have changed it other than maybe giving the developer hindsight because they went on they tried to do the same thing at St. Mary's and, and that didn't work. And they realized at that point, you're not, you're not really going to mess with this city council because they're going to not give you a drive-through. And so, so it's politics, but it was yeah. a building that had a great possibility, especially when we're always looking for places for market rate housing and, and David Carver is a guy who would develop something like that um, and, and ultimately make that investment. And, you know, we were, we were sold a bill of goods. Like we were being told this building is no good and, yeah. and it's falling down. That was baloney. Yeah, that it was. was it structurally was good. It, it was, was totally toward that good. building and it was so, it had so much potential. It had so much potential. <laughs> there was a, a, a perfect storm of, I mean, there was an owner who wanted way more than the, the value of the building for it, um, which Duncan was Kafu management was willing to pay. They, you know, right. they have that resources and they can make that back Quickly. from the space, from the lot. So, um, so they had somebody who was willing to pay way over its value. Um, it, it's a sort of thing that if um, they had interest, they, there were other buyers interested, just not at the kind of price that that Kafu would have paid. So it was something where, you know, if we had had better incentives, that's another thing that could have, you know, if we'd had the community, if the Community Preservation Act had been even, you know, a, a glint in the eye and for Pittsfield at that point, mm -hmm. um, that might have been something that, you know, the owner or developer might have looked at, like, I can get some funding toward to pre preserve this. Um, and we, we 
you know, as St. Mary's has, as the Tyler Street Firehouse um, on uh, is now getting, you know, the Community Preservation Act is is going to save a lot of buildings that we couldn't save before. And that was part of the energy. I mean, I think, uh, you know, you remember that campaign. And yeah, you, yeah. You did an endorsement for us. And yeah, there was this, uh, you know, this- <clears throat> after I didn't endorse it the first time. Yeah. <laughs> that was where, I mean, the first time it came through, um, uh, you know, it was it was seen as well. It's just another tax, yeah. Um, and uh, and so you know, I was in the mayor's office at the time, and the mayor didn't support it at the time. The council president didn't support it at the time. Although the vote, I don't think was that lopsided. I mean, I, don't I think know. it was like yeah, it was like 60-40. It was yeah. about the reverse of how it was ten years later. Yeah, uh, yeah. Enough, yeah. And I and I think that was a lesson learned because there was so much we could have done during that time. Um, I certainly changed my approach yeah. uh to it. And uh and I think it's been beneficial since then because you've yeah. seen uh it it being used. And I think it's just a matter of like this is this is where the um a free market doesn't always work. You know, yeah. you know, when you just, because there, there are confines that you put in and you try to put that in zoning, you know, and you know, like in this world, zoning is like a big deal. Is it a commercial property? Is it a, is it a residential property and all that? What kind of, uh, and so that is your broader framing and your sort of contract that you have with every property. So when someone goes into a property, they know that there's a certain parameter, yeah. but then you go a step beyond that. And sometimes there are permits and then there are special permits. Um, but this gives you another tool for the the government and the government should be representing the people to value things that may not be valued in the free market um at the at that moment in time yeah it gives it gives the you know the public um an extra layer to uh, of ability to to guide the course of the community you know besides just you know capitalism as factors you know it, it gives us some um that, you know, ways to, to guide for, for like a, a longer sighted. Capitalism view. is not perfect. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Believe it or not. Yeah. I know. <laughs> and it comes to shock, but, um, yeah, you know, so it's, it's, uh, it, and, and I think part of the, the difference too, over 10 years is we were able to calculate to what we had lost. We were able to have a hindsight that was better. Um, I'm not sure it was packaged in that perspective, you know, we, we were going to lose registry of deed, all these fees were going out the window, you know, local mm. homeowners were paying fees into it and it was going to Northampton and other towns who had right. adopted CPA. Um, so I think we were able to calculate like, you know, over 10 years, we've, you know, Pittsfield residents have paid like $2 million to put in parks and like preserve buildings in other towns and got none of it back. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that was a factor too. We were able to assess like, um, and, you know, since that time, I, you know, it's been millions of dollars have gone into local projects uh, The you know, the dog park, um, the renovations at Springside house, the, the St. Mary's building um, little things that the Athenaeum's been able to do, you know, preserving archival stuff. And, you know, cause mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's, a lot of CPA is great because it's a very local process. It's a local committee. Yes. Um, it's available to, you know, it's accessible to a small grassroots organization can sit down and write out this application and apply to local people who aren't making decisions from Boston, like a grant application or something and um, know the value, know like what something means to a community like specifically in ways that can't be like and quantified. And to do things that really, know. I mean, you look at it, um, I used to be the Ward 6 counselor, West Pittsfield, and there's this little tiny West End 
cemetery mm-hmm. out there. Yeah. And by the way, I think there are some who are very critical of this. Where are we spending money on us? But like, how else do you fix that? You know, because it's kind of a highly specialized situation when you have like tombstones that may be broken or, you know, or a, a framework or fencing that needs to be improved. And like the city's not going to do that stuff. I mean, you yeah. know, you're not going to send a, D- be a regular capital you're not budget send DPW out there and like, you know, fix this a hundred year old, <laughs> you know, fence situation. Um, you know, you need to have some sort of specialization there. And, and that's, and that's uh, a tool that allows you to do those kinds of things that have value, but, you know, um, but, you know, may not necessarily face uh, or, or able to, to be paid for in the normal budget, as you said. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Pittsfield, in many ways, was slow to that game because it's a different thinking than some other smaller communities that are, have always been really glued to their history and have always been there. There's things that would have been unthinkable to do in Lennox and Stockbridge that Pittsfield was, you know, it was just a different industrial, corporate, you know, meat and potatoes, GE culture, you know, um, yeah. Uh, thought it was it, still is to some extent i mean yeah, you, if you, if you look at it and, uh, and, and a lot of times i'll be consulted by uh statewide political people who are you know running for office and you know they want to know about the berkshires and that sort of thing and, and really uh pittsfield is a very conservative democrat type city i mean they have a d next to most of their names as far as voters but they're very conservative. They're not like uh, the liberals in uh, Great Barrington or Williamstown, yeah. uh, that sort of thing that see the world uh, differently. It's much more of a you know, blue collar kind of uh, lunch pail, uh, you know, maybe pro union, but not even always that, uh, you know, we're like the half distance between Williamstown and Cheshire, you know, yeah. politically yeah, or something, <laughs> you know, <laughs> something like that. But it, it really, it, it is interesting. It's a different men- mentality yeah. out there. Um, and I, GE you know, was hugely, I, I think, I, I, I don't think we can overlook just how much GE changed our culture. You know, GE, I mean, books have been written about the GE management, you know, style and thinking, you know, Alec Baldwin had a character on 30 Rock that was just literally, you know, constant spoof of like the G culture of like, mm-hmm. you know, a certain kind of slightly liberal conservatism, but, you know, like straight lace, white shirt, you know, um, not too artsy, you know, like not not big avant-garde theater, like town players artsy, you know, like community and, and not to diss town players at all, but like, yeah, you know. Right arts within certain bounds um you know i think which was like the cultural development office and that whole idea when that came around that was pretty radical for pittsfield that was, mm-hmm. you know to to be able to court barrington stage and and yeah. to have this brief arts renaissance that we did have for like a decade there before all the galleries closed and administrations completely stopped supporting it and you know it just was but those ideas are still valid you know those ideas are still valid i i you know um that was the only time in the last 50 years we stopped losing population in pittsfield Mm. was during that that arts um you know that arts renaissance we actually grew jobs we actually tiny tiny bit grew population by maybe a few hundred people instead of losing as we've been steadily doing for the last 50 years so it, it was working the arts and prosperity study that they did there was pretty clear like the, you know it was proven it was it was proven to work but we didn't we didn't stay the course there in pittsfield with that um, yeah you know. but even yeah and i yeah i mean you you are 100 percent correct i mean and, and i think but we're lucky support. well i mean we still got barrington stage and we're, we're lucky we got yeah. the colonial redone we got 
you know, Barrington located here. And, you know, so there's still, we're still getting dividends from that, you know, as yeah. far as I'm concerned, it, it could have been more, it could have been uh, pursued, but uh, yeah. It's interesting because that building alone has quite an amazing history. Uh, oh, yeah. Barrington Stage, which was the Union Theater, yeah, uh, and then a history even before that. Uh, before it was called, I mean, it was always maybe it was built yeah. Before as it was the, the movie theater, it was uh, yeah. yeah, it was like vaudeville and, and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, they, they um, yeah, Union Square was was uh, and it was. Um, yeah, I think it was really interesting the way um, it, it was that transition from like, I think, because I think they had films there in the silent era, but then silent era films weren't that big of a draw on Pittsfield, I think, you know, um, uh, so it, it kind of went back towards the, then they had a stock company there and, and one of them, one of those actors went on to very prominent um, film and, and stage thing. And then his wife was murdered by a serial killer. But um, <laughs> that's also my macabre tw uh, Roaring Twenties tour. Um, so just a plug there. But um, yeah, and then you know the talkies came out, and you know talking pictures. You, you know it's hard to picture being as interested. And in, I, you know, I've watched silent films, but I'm not like at home and relaxing at night watching silent films. <laughs> no, you know, it's yeah. more it's more work cerebrally. So you know, talk when talking. There, there was came a, out, there that, was a very know. famous actress. Um, I think you wrote about maybe not a yeah. uh, socialite actress. I don't know. So I can't remember her name, but you wrote about her recently. Yeah. Yeah. There are. Well, I mean, um, I think people forget the colonial and the union square and the palace. We were, we got big name talents. We have national, we had national people. Um, uh, um, what's his name? I'm um, there. Uh, not Charlie Chaplin, but Buster Keaton, Buster Keaton performed in Pittsfields uh, several times. Um, but, uh, yeah, there was a, there was a certain 1920s, um, actress who, um, her and her husband were, were very, like very much on the rise in, in theater. Um, and they kind of put down roots in Pittsfield for a little while. Um, and they, uh, they bought, um, the notorious, uh, Meadowview Inn, um, out in Coatesville, which had been like the a notorious big, it's a, it was an inn. In it was always called, well, it was, it had a lot of liquor violations, let's put it that way. Um. <laughs> Not that a lot of places in Pittsburgh, I mean, you know, um, even before Massachusetts has had this ongoing prohibition struggle. Um, so that's one of the things. I wonder, that, like these, the, the notorious, because it's like, well, is it is it the ones that are just targeted by local authorities or are they really the ones that are just doing bad things? I always you, know, you kind of wonder that because yeah. even through our history and not too far back or maybe even today, you know, I mean, there are, there are establishments <laughs> that may be more targeted than oh, others. Yeah. I mean, I think it's fair to say, like our friends at Methuselah's were targeted <laughs> uh, quite a bit uh, recently, uh, maybe more scrutiny than other establishments. So you could imagine that historically, yeah, there were some establishments that were more targeted. Than oh, I'm sure. I'm sure there was. Um, I'm sure. I think the only real difference is it was like it was much more there was much more zealous, like um moral crusade uh -huh. atmosphere yeah. going on so there was like less people getting away with it because like for some periods like you know when chief chief sullivan was in there and and chief nicholson and stuff there was just like no like they didn't like liquor they didn't like <laughs> men <No>. dancing <laughs> without coats they didn't like we had a coatless dancing band in pittsville this Jesus. is real real, you, real when talk was that? when was that uh this is like late 20s early 30s <laughs> 
it was good thing that, you know the men um the, at the line dances and stuff uh were getting it was getting God. you know so sexy. there had to be a lot of sexy there had sweating. to be speak easies oh around. yeah i mean well, there was constant there was liquor raids nonstop from the 1850s through the 1930s in Pittsfield. Hmm. Um, the Pittsfield Police Department, like most Massachusetts towns, was formed for the purpose of stopping um, out of control alcohol consumption and um, morals offenses by women. Basically, this is what police, you know, historically in Massachusetts, the enabling legislature uh, legislation. And came what, out and at what the did same we do before police? Laws. What did we do before police? There was a high sheriff of Berkshire County, um, and they, you know, occasionally hire like you know night, but but there were no town towns and cities didn't hire their own um, police or or uh, constable. Churches hired privately. Um, police forces were partly to stop the churches from hiring their own people to go after bootleggers. Wow. Um, because before, uh, before Massachusetts had its liquor ban in like 1855 or whatever, there was, uh, there was just the churches like didn't like people drinking. They couldn't legally do anything about it, but they'd hire private detectives to like, you know, bust them out. Yeah. And, and if they were, <laughs> you know, seen, I assume at that time, if the church kind of called them out, that was like a major ostracizing for an individual to to yeah some people that. didn't care or some people think yeah <laughs> people weren't as religious in the 1800s That's as uh you know i mean the, the if you were wanted to be like really respected well, in the chamber and yeah. type organizations and things like yeah. that you had to you, you had to do yeah some people things were but for you know if you were well, those like, people just drank at home i guess i don't know maybe. yeah <laughs> but, i mean but, they they were caught sometimes in the saloons on fen street mechanics <laughs> i mean the, this was the thing is like you know half the population was heavily for banning alcohol for many many years but more than half but you know some of them also drank you know like they felt it should be banned but they also drank hmm. you know they also so, violated but what's this 1855 <clears throat> so 1855 was was um like a liquor ban period um for for massachusetts until the 1870s not complete liquor ban but okay. um you know spirits and things like that huh. there had been recurring i mean they started in the early 1800s with the uh the 15 gallon rule was that you couldn't um possess you couldn't buy less than 15 gallons of anything so it was just like rich people could drink you know you right. could afford to have more and you couldn't serve in bars and things like that um so then they just <laughs> so you, started you went to like, the you know, the warehouse yeah and uh <laughs> and, and you had to buy 50 you, could, yeah. you couldn't buy 14 gallons you can, or you could pay to see like a spotted pig you'd have a spotted pig party and you'd pay this large <laughs> cover charge to, to see the spotted pig which was just a pig with like paint spots on it and you'd pay this handsome cover charge and drink free all night that that was legally acceptable because they weren't selling you the, the, somebody could buy 15 uh, gallons and then serve it in pints for free with a handsome cover charge for the attract for the entertainment and the entertainment funny. could be total bs and just <laughs> get you there to you know to free uh that's part of the reason why massachusetts doesn't allow like drink discounts or free drinks or anything like that that goes way back to that was a loophole to to get around the early prohibitions. Yeah, that is so amazing. I'm just, I'm still fascinated by the fact that police departments were created in such a way people don't know that. I mean, is I, 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 I mean, I started looking at the, you know, if you're, if you're, you know, less than a hundred years old or so, <laughs> why would you think yeah. that police departments were created for any other reason than for public 
safety and in in the way that we think about it today you know crime people you know you know to make sure people aren't killing each other and, and that sort of thing but that's not really no. how it's because people are opening saloons right next door to the churches and the churches found it unacceptable and this was turning into warfare i mean the the Methodist church out in Chester uh, mask was bombed. It was bombed and burned to the ground. And and then they in turn bombed, uh, you know, the Carson League was like the, the temperance church league back then. It, they meant business. They were like hiring people to shoot up bootleggers and and stuff like that. So this was, this was like a huge moral conflict for the heart and soul of Pittsfield. And especially not to be tolerated, it was public drunkenness by women. That was like this sign that moral decay would, you know, that it was the end of the world. You know, was, wow. public drunkenness by women was was uh, like this huge trigger. So, um, you know, and it's no so it's no accident that the police stations before this one was built, the other police station was right by it. It's right on that Fen Street, the boundary between the old liquor territories and the churches. And it was a it was a battle line for hmm. where, were the, where were the liquor uh, all down Fen Street, all down Fen <laughs> so, Street. You keep saying Fen Street. Um, now, it's funny it was, because back um, when I, early in my city council days, you know, the city councilors would walk across the street to. Um, yeah. Oh my God, Lax there. Lax, yeah. Lax Lounge. <laughs> that was the, uh, the place, you know, you go a little bit further yeah. down, there's uh, Sideline and yeah. there's Sims. Uh, I don't know if those are vestiges of this, but it sounds like Fen Street was the was the hot spot. Yeah, and originally it was like you know shacks and people's houses and stuff were the were the saloons and the bars um, and Fen Street, and then across north on the other side, um, it's not even a street anymore, but just that little kind of uh, it's called Market Street, that lane between um, mm, that yep. goes down to Flavor, what used to be Flavors. Um, that was the other, that was the worst den of iniquity in Pittsfield history. Mechanics Row was like, there used to be all these little shanty houses along both sides, um, between McKay street and North. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was where a lot of liquor raids, uh, brothels, you know, uh, dens of communists, allegedly it was <laughs> a couple of homicides down there unsolved. So basically uh, the central block area that, that whole. Yeah. Area. Just about, yeah. Just before, before between, they built um, the central block. Yeah. I assume. Yeah. yeah, yeah okay. Before, uh, before England brothers. Um, and that's ultimately what did it. I mean, that the police tried to get rid of mechanics row for decades and the only, it was, it was only through gentrification of, of North street retail that we got, all the saloons uh, and then it moved a street down to um to a liberty street that runs off a depot um mm-hmm. kind of by uh, tito's there mm-hmm. um, that used to be like more of a street because all the it was all apartments all along the back yeah there's kind of, of an alley building. there now on yeah. uh, just to the uh, uh I is it the harvard direction. square building um yeah and then and the old brew works on the other side but it used to be right. like apartments all along it was all back doors and back porches and that that was like a um, real boozy brothel part of town after that. <laughs> and then, you know, people got cars and they started being able to go to the Albany red light district. And we stopped having a real like red light district per se in Pittsfield. Um, cause people went up to there. Um, because it sounds like that it was more difficult to do that, uh, in Pittsfield, perhaps compared, maybe Albany was a different vibe there. Yeah. The Albany, Albany had much more, um, political participation you know uh, they, they you know occasionally i mean they would raid brothels there and find like new you know half a dozen uh, state reps you know assemblymen i you know with uh in compromising positions with the ladies and stuff like that so it was you know um up until um 
up until Rockefeller just bulldozed everything out there and turned it into something from like the Imperial City from Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was Man. that was a great old neighborhood uh, architecturally. It was like this great, beautiful old neighborhood, but it was it was full of uh, you know it was full. Of, there was shooting stabbings and and a uh, lot of lot of uh prostitution activity and gambling all the all the, you know all the vices of the time oh my gosh so you <laughs> so you so tell me about your the tour um when that begins and and does it uh sort of focus in the downtown uh, area yeah yeah it's all um entirely takes place in downtown it's going to start at uh, Persa park and kind of go um around north street in a loop um but that'll really uh, that's going to kick off May 14th, and then I'm doing alternating weekends all through May and June. Um, so it kind of be like one weekend on, one weekend off. I'll do Saturday night tours and Sunday matinee, matinee tours. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I, I strongly would uh, recommend people uh, reserve in advance because um, I limit tours to 20 people. More than that, really, you know, it's it, it's not a quality experience I think for people. So I think 20 is a really good good amount of people to herd around Pittsfield. Um, but it'll all be um, downtown on sidewalks and ADA accessible crosswalks. And um, it's it's really just going to kind of um, continue. Uh, I did uh, the macabre Pittsfield tours in October that were heavily 1800 centrics. And it really went into that stuff about how the police started and, and the prostitution and the opium dens of the 1800s. And this is kind of kind of a sequel it's all new stories of how um some of those themes continued and intermingled with you know the birth uh, the resurgence of the klu klux klan and the uh um this newfound freedom of women um to vote and all these different kinds of themes uh, so you know we'll see, we'll see the heavy heavy bootlegging that was going on in pittsfield because there was huge distilleries and there were shootouts with police and it was like all the all the gangster stuff you see in the movies um was was here um, and there were business owners like you know creating like weird little uh pervy um secret rooms in downtown buildings and stuff um places you see every day that you would never guess the the um the, the wild histories of um so there's there's gonna be a lot of but it, it uh it's all ages but it is definitely adult themes it's you know there's gonna be a lot of murder suicide um some stark looks at you know racism and social uh social tensions and um and real issues that that people were dealing with it in some cases are very similar 100 years later um in some cases are are uh kind of seem very foreign and alien mm. This is great. <laughs> I think I'm going to take that tour, uh, Joe. And um, I, 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 one of the, the best courses I ever took in college was a urban studies uh, course. And I, and I find it just really, and I, and I know you do too, is, is taking a certain area and just being able to see the evolution of it. Sometimes for, and like you said, like the Allendale disaster right yeah. like, i mean as far as urban you know yeah. uh, development and and the planning that went into it very very uh love to go back and change that 
but um, but in in a lot of ways, um, I think that is so fascinating, and and I, and I find myself, and I'm sure you do, and I think a lot of people do, uh, you know, when they work when they walk into a place like museum facsimiles or uh, you know, sort of a store building, and they run into these maps and they yeah. see these old maps, and they kind of like recognize some of the streets, and then see how dramatically different it is, or in some ways, kind of similar, or then you see these side streets that don't, no longer exist. Yeah, uh, in some cases. Is um, you know I think that's a real natural uh, human fascination that people have, and I think it's I think it's really powerful uh, and and really great stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's so neat to see um, the way you know because I think um, it informs kind of the way that we you know it, it explains things about why things are the way they are now. I mean, you know, it's even like when you said, uh, how, why are we spending money on the, the West part cemetery, you know, to restore, um, you know, maybe some of the reasons why we're really good at cemetery upkeep now is because of how kind of shoddily we did Pittsfield handled it in the past. So I think sometimes it illuminates how we are, where we are now. Um, and, and hopefully, hopefully, um, at its best history can sometimes like, warn us you know sometimes we can start to recognize the the structural similarities um now it's 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 a tough thing to do you know because it's just it's easy to see in hindsight well you know when we we're uh when we we're working to get a ball stadium that's probably when we should have been saving and redeveloping the england brothers building and when we were you know um worried about creating a whole bunch more parking in downtown in the 60s that's when we probably should have been saving the train station and the hotel wendell and locking down that lodging and and transportation uh when we were letting g buy out local control william stanley we were I, i'm not sure what we were focused on then balloons maybe uh, it was big big time for balloons but um but you know and it's now it's like um I think about the issues that we've been focused on in Pittsfield over the last two years. Um, I mean, there's been a worldwide pandemic. Has that been a local focus as much as bicycles? Probably not. I mean, you know, I think we've, I feel like, you know, the two biggest issues over the last two years have been like bicycles and cell towers. And there's a $60 million police station about to be built. That's going to bust us out economically and socially there's there's a lot of there's uh, a lot of changes to the city council happening that are a little concerning um and the attitudes and views of some of these new counselors uh you, there's a lot of really important like stuff that you could see the historical arc of that we need to be probably focusing on dealing with like you know and we're um i don't know maybe maybe not maybe not as much as as I'd like, but um, yeah, that's my perspective. That's my my historian's perspective, I guess. Joe Durham for City Council. Been down that one before. <laughs> it's, uh, but it, it it is good stuff. So um, you know, I I I love it. I you know, I I follow uh, your stuff on Instagram and uh, especially on Instagram because it's visual, you know, yeah. and uh, and a lot of those maps and and images and and that sort of thing. And um, and I love it. I absolutely love it, and uh, look forward to your content. And uh, and uh, I I'm really thrilled that people are you know, interested in, in their own homes and in properties and things like that, that, uh, that give you, uh, this, this great work to do, um, which I think enriches 
us all, um, and certainly uh, your own work um, every yeah. day. So that, that's really, really cool. Yeah. Shout out to my clients because they are allowing history to be uncovered, you know, new history every day. That's, that's you know, that it's a great thing that people are taking that investment, you know, in their properties and, and taking that extra step to find out the heritage of it. And uh, without it, I couldn't, I couldn't afford to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff, my friend. Well, thanks for Thanks for we 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 went on an epic journey uh, this evening, and we probably could still go on. I don't know, but um, but uh, I love it. And uh, keep up, keep keep on keeping on, my friend. Thank you. It's great, great to be on. Thanks. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the John Kroll podcast on your platform of choice. Maybe it's Apple Podcasts or Spotify, whatever works for you. Also, I would like to hear from you on the people and the stories that you'd like to hear more of. Send me a note through Facebook Messenger, Instagram, LinkedIn. I'm easy to find and I'm easy to reach. Look forward to hearing from you. And if you'd like to support the podcast for less than a cup of coffee, and I'm not talking about the cost of a large latte at a fancy coffee shop, no, more like a McDonald's coffee, go into the description of this episode and scroll down to the anchor.fm link. It's right there. Just click it and you can see your options or log on to anchor.fm backslash John hyphen Kroll backslash support. Again, thank you for listening. I'm John Kroll. Talk to you soon. Thank you.